Monsters have taken their place among cinematic history, but who are the real monsters? Are they the scaly creatures that haunt our nightmares? Or are they the person you see every day just casually walking down the street? What happens when man outweighs the monster on the screen and creep into our lives and dreams? With our co-hosts Joe Radazzo, Vicky Ray, and Keith Shago, they will uncover who are the real villains as we explore the classic cinema along with some modern greats and find the monster within us. Hello, welcome to the Trailers Podcast. This is Eminem, Monsters and Mad. This week, we'll be discussing two films, which will be Badlands from 1973 and M from 1931. And before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. What have you been up to, David? Um, hi everyone. Um, not much at all. I've been sick all week. Um, terribly sick. We can hear you today. Yes, yes, yes. And then my voice is still kind of like so and so, but it's definitely got better. Much better. Um, all I did is like waking up, trying to survive, trying to breathe because the cough was terrible. Um, Breathing. I've been in contact. I've been in contact with the doctor constantly. I want to say, I want to say, almost every day, almost. Um, and going back to bed, and I'm waking up, going back to bed, trying to watch something, and then going back to bed. It's literally constant. All I've done is sleeping, done nothing at all. Um, then in the evening, um, I would stay a little bit with my brother in his room. And we've been, I mean, he has been uh, playing the very old game, Spire on Crash Bandicoot. So oh my God, that, that is old. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we went to like retro gaming. So that was that actually the only fun. thing that kept me alive. I haven't done that in a long time. That is yeah, right. Yeah. I got to take Asher to a gaming room so I can kick his ass at Galaga. They, they are amazing games. I, I forgot how beautiful it was to play like the old games. Because these days, it's the, the games are becoming very complex, very modern, oh very God. realistic. It's all great, but I like the very old games. They're simple and they're just so much fun. They're simple. I, I suck love them. at the freaking Halo stuff well, and all that. I just well, Spyro <laughs> and Crash have been remastered, so the, the yes, original game is the they're new remastered, and they look beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're remastered versions. That's the one my brother's got. Um, we got them on the Xbox. Realize how difficult games were back then than they are today. Yes, yes, and they were more difficult. challenging. And then my, I could see my brother getting very so frustrated. It was so much fun. <laughs> it was like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm becoming young again. <laughs> Those are fun because I can do them. I can't do. I, there's just I. I just give up on Xbox. I just do not have that that chip in my brain that functions with that stuff. Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> to right. be to be honest, I I love these games because when I was much younger, I used to I grew up with very very old uh, PC games. Like I don't know if you ever heard they very very ancient games like um, Watch Commander Keen. Have you ever played Commander Keen? Yeah. very old 2d games that's an ancient or... game he's definitely played it <laughs> alone it alone alone in the dark i've never played that one but i played commander keen i played zargon jill of the forest uh it's all like very very of old they're very very that's... very very ancient i was like probably i must not have been when i was when i played these games um i, I love them i grew up with these i remember games, playing so... phantasmagoria 
I want to play. Or basically, one. it's done with like real people, and then it's like you have to like save her, or her head gets chopped off, and you see the head rolling off. It's <laughs> <laughs> like shit. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> fun, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, that that that's it for me, I guess. Yeah. What you about yourself, really Joe? Is. What have you been up to? Well, uh, unfortunately, there's somebody at work that I worked with last night that uh, had the symptoms of being very sick with something. And I'm hoping that I didn't catch it because whatever the hell it is, um, I finished up writing a um, I've been uh, working reworking something that was published in mine like 15 or so years ago. Um, uh, uh, basically, I'd gone to a movie palace in New Jersey that was restored and they showed uh, the Black Cat by Edgar Ulmer and James Whale's Old Dark House. And when I um, I did a write-up for this one website like 15 years ago, the website's gone. I contacted the people behind it. It's like, yeah, all the stuff you wrote for us, you know, whatever you want to do with them. So I was like, okay, let me update it. And, I'll, and I started going more in-depth into the, into the history of the films as well. Um, it's something like 3,000 words, 3,200-something words, and it's like seven pages long. So I, I finally felt comfortable enough after uh, working on it for so long that I started sending it out uh, yesterday. So um, I'll see if somebody bites on it and picks it up. I mean, I don't know how much interest there is in 90 year old movies, but. You know what, more of the more than you think, the more I delve into this stuff, because you're actually got me so interested in all this old stuff. And there's a huge following. It's it. They're, they're out there. They're out there. People really do love this stuff. So there are people that want to read about it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, I'm sending it around. Um, I'll send it around to a couple of other places and uh, we'll see how it goes. See if I have any any luck getting it out there. Uh, I had one response so far, which is, hey, we don't have that much money, but maybe our, maybe uh, the person who runs our website could look at it. So we'll see. So I, I work 40 hours a week, so not much money, you know, whatever, man. It's something that I've already written that I just touched up. Hell so whatever yeah. you could give me, I'll take. Because It's not like... Oh, why did I just say that on the air here? <laughs> we can why did I just say that right right now? Um, I'm getting too comfortable. Um, other than that, uh, watching a lot of noir movies, I've decided uh, since I found this uh, this this old uh, this challenge of like you know watch you know watching noir movies. I've been doing one a day. I'm behind on my write ups. I've been keeping up on. Watch you look really good. I see it every day. It's like, damn, Joe's like smoking it. I mean, I've been. I mean, I'm trying to like knock him out, and then like, like I've, I've fallen so behind that it'll be like, oh wait, I have him on my phone, but I haven't posted him yet, and I'll post like six or seven. <coughs> um, uh, but besides that, just yeah, slow season at work, so I'm just kind of, kind of coasting, waiting for everything to get busy again, and hoping that the weather, you know, it's been kind of crazy here. Yeah, it's freaking cold looking up there you guys getting that blizzard they're talking about uh, we got um it, it didn't hit too bad where i am up where shanta is she had a really bad ice storm that like oh i saw that did she the picture? Without power? no she did not lose power but if you look at the damage it did to, it's to, bad i saw it yeah. this morning i didn't even know they were getting one i thought they were supposed to get snow but they got hammered with ice. yeah they got destroyed up there so yeah, they did. here we here we got snow i was at work and uh, what uh, what Sean told me was we had like rolling lo rolling brownouts like, down yeah. here, but I, I wasn't here for them. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been extreme weather week. And before that, and now it looks like looking outside right now, it looks like it's kind of a nice day. And it's been like forty degrees otherwise, which isn't too terrible. But then like 
ice storm in the middle of everything, which is just really, really strange. Um, but yeah, besides that, just watching a lot of noir, watching a lot of, uh, well, really mostly noir because I mean, I, I, I've been kind of stuck in that and I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can, I'm, I'm enjoying these, these, these movie challenges. Cause when you've got like a million movies, you want to see something that'll kind of laser focus it to something like, uh, today's challenge is watch a noir movie made by uh, made by Warner Brothers and like last you know yesterday was watch one by Universal the day before was watch one by RKO I think tomorrow's like watch one by uh, by Edgar Ulmer watch one starring Peter Lorre so it's it gets it gets me to where it's like okay it makes me make a decision <laughs> if yeah. nothing else it puts me in a position where I'm or I'm not like cycling through everything going oh what do I want to watch okay no these are these are the prompts. This is what I have to do. So it, it, it definitely helps narrow it down because I, I want to see like basically everything. So there's so much out there too. There's, I mean, there's like hundreds of thousands of titles out there. You don't it's realize hard. it's just like, wow, I haven't seen this. You can't possibly watch it all in one lifetime. I mean, you can give it hell. You know? I've told everybody like there's 130, 140 years of cinema history. You're not going to see everything. No. Which is why when people ask me about seeing certain things, I'm like, maybe <laughs> buy me a DVD. That's buy me a DVD or Blu-ray. Then I'll know you're serious. You want me yeah. to watch something? Buy me a DVD or Blu-ray. Don't. Oh, it's streaming on. I don't give a fuck. Buy me physical media that right. I know you're serious about wanting me to watch it. <laughs> and what about yourself, Fix? What have you been up to? Not a whole lot, Phil. It's just been, we, well, he's talking about bad weather. We're doing all four seasons in four days here in Texas. It goes from 80 degrees. I had, it was 88 the other day ago, 88. And now it's like 37 out there. It's just like, come on, cut it out. You That's know? even more extreme than up here. I, I, uh, I but thought it. But it's, it's February. We're starting to level off. It's coming to March. Now we're getting into tornado season. Now it's going to be all fun. But uh, let me see. What did I do? We're getting ready for Asher's doing his motocross thing on Saturdays. That's starting soon. I'm bored, so I need him to do sports again. But I, well, I, I told you I was watching The Last of Us. I got finished all that. Did you finish watching up until the last episode, Keith? Yeah, I'm, I'm so loving this. I wish I could binge it all, but there, there's going to be 10 episodes, I think. But I, I, I cannot sing its praises enough. That's that why shows. I'm waiting. <laughs> um, and um, what did I watch? Oh, I watched uh, Highwaymen. Do you ever see that with uh, Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson? They're the two mm -hmm. police officers that that went after Bonnie and Clyde. How it, historically relevant it is, but it was a good movie. Um, and I watched Raging Bull. I hadn't seen it in like 20 years. And I just didn't realize, what, like, I mean, what an asshole part, really, seriously. <laughs> De Niro nails asshole perfectly in that movie. Not to mention they have the actual uh, uh, boxer who's doing cameos. And, yeah, he was kind of, he was a so-and-so. Man, he he was married like a thousand times. He was mean to his wives. He used to throw his fights for the mafia. Total douche. <laughs> but I guess he was for a lot of firsts. So. But it's a really interesting story. It's black and white. It's really cool. I liked it. And I finally I started watching um, Sarah Geller's uh, new thing out. It's called The Pack. It's just nice to see her back. And she's not doing the teeny, teeny bopper stuff. She's doing the adult roles now. She's 45. She has to. 
But I was going to say, she's not. I, I, she's I not know, but anymore. she's really good at it. So I'm really enjoying it. I think I got up to the last episode, but that was really good. It's just nice seeing her back. I really enjoyed anything she did back in the day. And I watched um, uh, Babylon. It was three hours and it was, it was an excellent film. It was hysterical. It's like Brad Pitt had his Inglorious Bastards hat on back again. You know how when he gets like that, and I, mean, I just I love I love him. A lot of people hate him. I love his acting. Um, I thought this was a it was hysterical. The, the first hour and a half is just laugh, but um, it kind of gets bittersweet towards the end. But I, I really give it a, a high recommend if you like if you love and it's not real I and mean, it's not based on actual people, but. Can you, I well, mean, yeah, so, some of it is. I mean, the um, there's well, an actress in there, yeah. but yeah, I mean, they, they didn't use their names, but like no, the Fatty Arbuckle no. scandals in there. Oh yeah, they did that. Files. They did that. There's there's a bunch yeah. of. It's just a great movie. It's it's a, it 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 kind of makes you feel. I mean, can you imagine being a, a silent film star and then you try to keep relevant? Is what it's all about. These people trying to keep relevant during the advent of talking. <laughs> So it's it's an excellent movie. I, like I said, if you get a chance to watch it, you have three hours, watch it because it was really well done. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I do really want to see it. So now that it's on Paramount Plus, I'll be able to. Also, apparently Megan is on. I haven't uh, seen that yet either. It's on Peacock. It is. Yeah. Okay. I've heard a lot of good things about it. And I've heard a lot of sketch things about it, but who cares? Usually when I hear sketchy things about it, that means that it's probably good and I'm going to like it. So that's why I don't pay attention to that. Also, uh, the Fablemans came out on Blu-ray, which means the rental price on uh, right. on digital now oh, is damn. not going to be $20 anymore. It's going to Still be like have six. not seen that one. It's I so got to see that too. I have not had a chance. Oh man, I haven't had a chance to see any, any new movies in a while. Um, wow. What's the last movie I saw in theaters? I don't even remember. It's been a couple of months now. Probably uh, with Mia Goff in it. <laughs> No, I didn't see Infinity Pool yet. I no? haven't seen that yet. No, I haven't seen Infinity Pool. Is it, I haven't did seen it come out already? Infinity Pool's out already. Yeah, um, I haven't seen any any theatrical release in 2023 yet, and I didn't see a lot of the late 2022. No, I stuff didn't either. Yet. No, I haven't either. So I gotta. But I, I did gotta see get it, but I did. But when it's up streaming, I did finally watch. Oh gosh, what the hell is it called? Bloody the new Night? is out next week. Oh, oh, a Violent Night. Violet Night, yeah. Violet Night is excellent. Oh my God, hysterical! Oh my God, he's he's just good at that those parts. I mean, I don't know. He just kind of brought <laughs> brought it brought it with him. His attitude, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it David was Harvard, it's, it's really fantastic. worth the, it was worth the wait. I enjoyed it, but not a lot going on with the messy, nasty weather here. We just kind of doing putting out fires and taking care of shit. What about you, Keith? Um, I've been off ill this week, so haven't done a lot. Been watching Big World Little People on a loop, so I'm on, I'm on I'm on season 19 now. So obviously, I know I've seen these children grow up and have their own children now. So that was interesting. Which show um, was that? Um, Big World Little People. That's like that 90s show. I thought I was going to hate it, but I love it. Yeah, it, it's good actually. I mean, the kids are now grown and they have their own kids now and. The parents are divorced, and yeah, I mean it's pleasant. You watch it, and you know there's not a bunch of people yelling and screaming at each other, which is always quite good when you're watching reality television. And no, oh, I've never it, seen a reality show yet with no yelling and screaming. Yeah, well, there's that. I mean, I used to watch the little people, the little couple as well. I remember, <laughs> yeah, she the she was. People. 
Yeah, she was. Um, she, I love that their the kids lead. are like six well, feet tall. It kills me. Well, no, they adopted <laughs> theirs because she couldn't have any. But um, the the she is the the wife or the woman. She is the leading pedi- pediatric surgeon throughout the throughout the world. Is she really? Yeah. So wow. she was. She wasn't. She that. wasn't. She was in Houston. She led the whole pediatric um, hospital in Houston. Now she's moved to Boston. So, and then he owns, and then he owns all, you know, d- you know, those diapers, you know, those um, things where dogs can pee on us, like a pee pad. Oh, puppy pads. Yeah. His, his, her husband's the one that um, invented that. Well, I definitely put a lot of their kids through school. <laughs> That's the case because I got puppy yeah. pads all the time in the wintertime. But they're quite nice programs because it's like they're just really normal lives and just being themselves and you know it's they're not yelling nice screaming, to watch just people being life. happy sometimes. Yeah. Of, wow, happy people! Holy shit, they do exist. Yeah. <laughs> so outside of that, what else? Have we, I, I mean, I've been watching bits and bobs. I mean, nothing. You know, I've been watching the films watch or watching here. I have not started that yet. I keep wanting to, and I keep not getting around to it. Yeah. Uh, do you guys but, see um, that Russell Crowe exorcism movie? Uh, it just dropped like two days ago. What's it called? I didn't. Nope, I don't think it is. I think did. it's called The Pope's Exorcist or something like that. I'll look no. it up real quick. I mean, my oh, problem with fun. Russell Crowe, I kind of want him exercised off the face of the earth. But that's I love funny. Russell Crowe. That's why I say, and I knew that you'd another be all excited now that they're redoing, they're making another Gladiator. Yeah, but you know, I think right. he's going to play. Um, He's gonna play. Oh my God! What's his name? He's, he's, gonna, he's so fat, he's so fat now. He played the stadium. He gained that weight or <laughs> unhinged. He's back to normal again. He's always been a little puppy though. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with said me. Russell Crowe in the Gladiator today. He's gonna play the stadium. <laughs> he will be the. He's stadium. gonna no. I think he's playing. Who's the guy with the wooden sword in Gladiator? Oh my God! He played uh, Dart. Oh God, Dart. Peter Pan. Huh? Peter Pan. No, no, no. He played in a... Captain Hook. That's going to drive me nuts now. He played in a lot of movies. It was in The Sentinel. What is his name? The father in The uh, Sentinel. I have no idea. I, I don't... I'm not... crazy. I got to look it up now. But he's supposed I'm to not, be... Remember the guy I'm not that a big, drives... I'm no, not a big be, sword and sandals kind of a fan No, either. stop. You are too. Me. Probably a closet sword and sandals guy. You know? No, I'm not actually. I don't like that. I never liked Hercules or anything like that. The only one I liked was Jason Eggernauts and Clash of the Titans, the originals. That's it. Oh, the guy. And the I think that was. I think that has to do with more Ray Harryhausen than it had to do with the subject matter. And I like Greek gods and goddesses and all that. I quite like that. Right. Yeah, it's it's a sub. The, those kinds of movies are not like I never really got into them either. Aside from you know like a couple of them here and there, but yeah, the, it's, it's a genre that always kind of left me cold too. Yeah. It's like, that, um, uh, oh, it's like stuff. Westerns. A lot of Westerns. I don't, I can't get into. You know, I grew up on a farm and stuff like that. Yeah, I but love I just find Westerns. It, I love all that stuff. Well, I find it's the same, it's the same plot over, over and over again, sort of thing. It's just kind of, like, yeah. Bad man come to town. How you come know? it won't tell me who's in this? Law, law man wins at the end of the day. I mean, there are a couple. I mean, there are a couple westerns I do like. I mean, you know, not all of them, but but there are only like few and in between. Like three hundred, I didn't like three hundred at all. I was bored. I liked it, but it wasn't what I was expecting. You know, I I, mean, I thought three. I, I think three hundred is awful. So yeah, so I see. I, I, I wasn't. I would. I wasn't really 
It was like Sin City. Wasn't the same? Was Sin City guy the same one that did it? I like the yeah, first. Yeah, but Sin, Sin City was basically different because it, you know, it's, it's taken from a comic book. But the way it was filmed and the way it was done and the different stories all combining together, like like Trick or Treat or right. horror story, you know. So, and I quite like the or Pulp Fiction's another anthology kind of. Right. So, so it did that very interestingly. So I was okay with that. As That's soon true, as I that see, was like that. Yeah, you're right about that. See, as soon as I see him in the sword and sandals and a little bit of a skirt, I'm just going, okay, I don't, I'm done. <laughs> I still think it's funny that, that they sued the producers because they all got sick trying to keep those six-pack abs. Well, the funny thing about it is that, um, you know, Brad Pitt jumped onto the bandwagon with Troy. Right. But Brad Pitt um, has a thing about his feet. He doesn't like his feet shown on television or in films. So he he's the only person who's ever done a sword and sandals with um you know toe toe covered boots. <laughs> Did he really Brad Pitt's feet? I'm googling Brad Pitt's feet. What's wrong with his feet? <laughs> oh, I don't know. He's just got his own personal vendetta <laughs> against them, I guess. <laughs> There's only gotta be on a reason. Some people are just really weird about feet. That's he's got so very funny. small feet, according to George Clooney. Mm. <laughs> I Maybe don't know if there's it. any truth to small feet. Y'all can tell me that. I don't know. I, I've never I've never been on the lookout for Brad Pitt's feet, so I never noticed this. <laughs> there Brad is a market Pitt. out there for Well, feet, there's though. a shit ton of articles about Brad Pitt's fucking feet. An issue with his feet. Yeah, there you go. There's, there's the foot and, fetish people just be like, we can't see Brad Pitt's feet. What's going on? Well, that makes me want to see his feet now. <laughs> Make that possible for me, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, this brings us to M, which is a 1931 German mystery suspense thriller film directed by Fritz Lang and starring Peter Lorre in his breakthrough role as Hans Brecker, a serial killer of children. An early example of a procedural drama, the film centers on the manhunt for Lorre's character, conducted by both the police and the criminal underworld. The film's screenplay was written by Lang and his wife, Thea von Harbo, and it was Lang's first sound film. It features many cinematic innovations, including the use of long, fluid tracking shots and a musical Latif in the form of In the Hall of Mountain Kings, whistled by Lorre's character. Now considered a timeless planet, the film was deemed by Lang to be his magnum opus. It is highly considered one of the greatest films of our times and an indispensable influence on modern cinema, sorry, an indispensable influence on modern crime and thriller fiction. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer of M from 1931 and we'll be right back. Du hast aber einen schönen Ball. Ich 
abzuschicken. Aus bestimmten Anzeichen geht er vor, dass auch dieser neue Mord von demselben gespenstischen Unhold begangen wurde, dem bereits acht Kinder unserer Stadt zum Opfer gefallen sind. Wer ist der Mörder? Wie sieht er aus? Wo verbirgt er sich? Niemand kennt ihn. Und doch ist er mitten unter uns. Jeden Tag erweitern wir das Fahndungsgebiet. Vielleicht doch noch irgendetwas Verwendbares zu finden, das uns zur Lösung des Problems näher bringt. Im ganzen Schriftbild liegt ein schwer erweisbarer, aber intensiv fühlbarer Zug von Wahnsinn. Also hört mal, der Block ist doch umstellt. Wenn er überhaupt noch mal nach Hause kommt, muss er uns ja in die Finger laufen. Ein Außenseiter verdirbt uns das Geschäft und den Kredit. Die Maßnahmen der Polizei, die täglichen planmäßigen Razzien zur Ergreifung des Kindermörders, hindern unsere Tätigkeit in einem kaum mehr ertragbaren Maße. Wir müssen ihn fahren. Wir selber. Welcome back to the Literary Legends Podcast. We're discussing M from 1931. So, Joe, what are your thoughts about M from 1931? Um, well, after your, your introduction, I agree with Fritz Lang. Well, I haven't seen every Fritz Lang movie, but from what I've seen, I think this is his magnum opus. I know a lot of people point to Metropolis. I think M's the better movie. Um, I mean, it's... I, I, <laughs> it's his I, favorite I, movie he made, so that's got to say something. Yeah, I've... I absolutely love this movie. Uh, watching it the other night, this was my first time watching it in a long time. I, I, um, I realized, I was like, you know what? I need the Criterion version of this. I bought it just, so, just for this podcast. And man, what a movie. And you know, again, in the introduction, uh, it is huge to, you know, the, 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 um, the formation of the, uh, of the crime film. Um, I, Peter Lorre is creepy as hell in this. He's always creepy as hell, but he was extra <laughs> creepy in this one. Do you know that people keep attack attacking him on the street after this movie because they associated him with a pedophile? Oh, shame. <laughs> that I guy never let this, this movie well, down. <laughs> okay, here, here's the thing. People keep I, I people keep saying pedophile. I but they didn't say killer. I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't remember any reference to him actually having either. any kind of sex. No, with no, no. So I, I don't know if we can call him that. He's certainly murdering children. I mean, right. you can, your imagination can take you, you know, where, where, wherever wherever you want. Um, I know that the the person this was based on, the killer this was based on, I think was actually a pedophile. Um, but they don't use the real. But they actually reference the actual uh, the actual killer. They reference Fritz Harmon, who who is the basis for the. Uh, Uh, for the character. So I guess this isn't supposed to be Fritz Harmon. It's supposed to be somebody who's similar to him. Peter uh, Curtin, too, he did. He was called the Vampire of Dusseldorf. He was another and that, one. And from. I think Fritz Harmon was a vampire of Hanover. Was that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I read I, I didn't know about the, the Vampire of Dusseldorf. I never read anything on him, but I remember reading about the Vampire of Hanover because this one seemed to inspire a lot. Um, Vicky uh, accidentally watched the 1951 version before she saw this. Um, <laughs> I watched them both. I, I, I caught completely, up. Completely unrelated, I watched a movie called uh, the, the Black Vampire from Argentina, which was 
another version of this. Oh, done really? From the, done from the perspective of a uh, female, uh, uh, female burlesque performer. Wow. Uh, she's the one who who's kind of leading the charge because uh, she she's worried about her daughter. Um, the tenderness of the wolves by Louis Lamel was based on this. So Fritz Harmon, that's you know a huge um, inspiration to a lot of these horror filmmakers. Um, but going back to this movie, there's an eeriness about it. Uh, I think it's the lack of score. Uh, like there's no music throughout the movie. I found which, something about that too, because I remember me and you were texting back about that. It says yeah. two minutes of the film was shot with sound. The remaining third was shot silent. At the time, the license fees for sound equipment were quite prohibitive. So this was a move to try to keep costs down. However, Fritz Lang liked the eerie, unnerving quality that arose from going from a sound world to one where there's no noise at all. And that's the other thing. I love that there isn't even ambient sound. Like you'll there's see none. like people none. gathering in the streets to come after him and there's no sound whatsoever. And I realize part of this is probably also because, you know, it's the early days of, of sound cinema. Right. So maybe they didn't think of doing, you know, Foley stuff. But I just think it makes the movie feel really, really um, otherworldly. It does. I really, really like that about it. Um, but I mean, and it's and as far as the themes, I like the themes. Uh, that and I, I also watched um, uh, "Beyond a Reasonable Doubt" by Fritz Lang a couple of a uh, couple of days ago too. Completely unrelated to this, it was just part of my noir thing. It was watching noir directed by Fritz Lang, so I was like, okay, what have I not seen? Um, and he always seemed to have this theme running throughout his movies. He did it here, he did it with Fury, and he did it with uh, "Beyond a Reasonable Doubt." Um, and I think even while the city sleeps, there was always this theme with him of um, making sure that people have like a fair trial, making sure that there's actual evidence before you go after people. Um, because it's the one thing about this movie when they do find him, the, the mob that forms to right. find him really doesn't have any evidence that he's the actual child killer. The only oh, thing yeah. they're going on is a blind man saying, hey, this guy was uh, was whistling uh, in the Hall of the Mountain King when he was buying a balloon from yeah. me. And he Where had does a that child song balloon. come from? What is that? Here again. Okay. So yeah, there's this, there's this, uh, over, there's this like over, overarching uh, theme of, um, of justice and what, and wanting wanting evidence, it was like, okay, no, we know we the audience knows he's the guy, but we, the mob has no evidence of this, and the, so yeah, it's it's a movie that's very um, very complex in the way it treats everything, which you know, for nineteen thirty, you know, it's Quite an achievement. It, it really is. Um, I think you have to look at Germany in 1930 as well. This is two years well, before the rise of Hitler. Oh, it has a lot to do with Nazi Germany. A lot of what he did had a well, lot. Well, it's it's Hitler. actually just before. It's just just before because what happened after World War One in Germany is that yeah. uh, basically Germany was extremely poor because America and Russia and England proposed these huge tariffs on Germany, so everyone was starving. They were all like starving to death. So. At this time, you did have a huge criminal underworld because, of course, if you're starving and no one can feed yeah. themselves. So you had the very, very poor. 
And of course, to the very, very poor, any kind of fear is exasperated because what happens is, is that people start ex exasperating and then clunking together to fight the, the common being. So and I think that if you also notice that during M, which I've noticed as well, that if you if you notice that when they were falsely accusing people of killing right. the children, that they all kind of have that Jewish look about them, which is kind of interesting. You, think? you know. Oh, all right. I I got, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of some of the people they're accusing. Because well, they, they to get, they, the guy, oh, the guy yeah. with the, the, guy with the round, the guy with the round glasses. Because it was, was definitely different person. in the 1951 black and white when it came to that. Did you think, Joe? It was kind of. Did you I didn't the, see the 1951 version because it was a little. You could tell it was a little more lightened when it comes to something like that. Because this was well, he had to be careful how he was filming this movie anyway. You know, because because he because the Nazis were taking over at that point. Well, they didn't know they it would be two years before that point, but there was a but huge. But they were period. already there. The brown shirts were already there. It, it, yeah, they were. They were grow. It was a growing thing. Where and well, basically, you're either with us, or you're against us, anyway. Goebbels so loved this film. It was one of his favorite movies. Joseph Goebbels loved this film. Really? Yeah. But, I, I would, I would but what you do have Joseph is, Goebbels what, was said to have described this film as fantastic, free of phony humanitarian sentiments. I, I disagree. Mean, There's lots yeah. of humanitarian sentiment in those. That's what I think too. Even for the Goebbels, okay? Even for the killer. In the, I, thought, it, I thought the killer was getting quite a break. I thought Peter Laurie, they were actually, I was actually feeling sorry for Peter Laurie. This movie, he's a child killer and you get empathy for this guy. But yeah, I know what you're saying. But that's what Goebbels thought anyway. I mean, <sighs> that's such I mean, a strange, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what he I said. Mean, I mean, yeah, but I mean, he was quite. Consider yeah, moral, morally corrupt anyway. I don't oh, think God, so. I don't think. I don't think he lived in a a, a reality. No, I just thought it was weird how some of them did, like they were they noticed this. Well, they were into propaganda. This is when they were getting wow. We need to get into what? this. So you know they were watching. Well, 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 Fritz Lang has a habit of putting social. Not that Fritz Lang was doing propaganda, but the Germans were watching. No, no, but what I'm saying is Fritz Fritz Lang has a habit of putting social morality into his films anyway. If you look right. at Metropolis, right. you know, we're, which is basically a, a very big post-World War One film anyway, where the poor are down and the rich are up here and there's no one in between. Who did of Birth of a Nation? D.W. Griffith. Okay. Griffith, yeah, that, that, that's more of an American thing. Yeah. Um, and but, but what you also have is, you know, if you look at what's coming out of Germany at this time, you also have the cabinet of Dr. Kragari and, you know, and there's this huge German expressionism that's coming through at that same time. And, you know, Thank I God. think what, and that, but Fritz, but I think what makes Fritz Lang, I mean, you know, Fritz Lang's next movie, Testament, where he was taking Nazi propaganda slogans and putting them into the mouth of his title character into children. Wow. And that's when he decided that's when he had to move to America. Right. After that. Yeah. So um, so he was very, very social. You know, even though he fought in World War One for Germany, he fought on the side of Austria at that time. Um, but you know, I think that you know, he actually was, you know, you got to remember people in the media are hugely Jewish. He had Rosen, he was married to uh, Lena Rosenthal, who got killed. Right, you know, mysteriously one night and things like that. So, 
quite interesting when you look at Fritz Lang in general. For yeah, he he yeah his his movies always like I said they have that that theme of social justice in them, and the theme of we need to actually have evidence before we can go after these people, and that's why like like Vicky said, you do kind of start to feel for Peter Laurie because while we know it. That, that's you got to separate yourself as the audience member from what you know what and what the characters know because he's got um, well he's bad shit he's mentally ill for one you can tell he's obviously clearly. mentally ill and clearly yeah this is but e- but even if you're mentally but the question is even if you're mentally ill does that mean you're innocent of the crime no no exactly and, and that, that's one of the that's there- one of the points that they're raising in this movie too yeah. but it's clearly a compulsion with him because you see that scene. Like he's not going out looking to murder people. He just happens to see him. He like this scene where he sees a little girl. Yeah. He sees a little girl and like he's now for whatever reason compulsed to go after her. And thankfully, as she walks around the corner, her mother shows up. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, because that would have been another victim. Um, so yeah. Uh did you well, guys you watch at- the dubbed version that was shot? No. I didn't see anything no. that was shot in English. They're saying it was common practice at the time for foreign language films to be concurrently shot in English, but I- he had nothing to do with the English language version of this film, which I didn't see. I probably wouldn't. I actually read the captions. I didn't I- know. I didn't know of, of English language version I of didn't the nineteen thirty one version existing. Yeah. But they did I mean, say that the film had made a sour first vision of contemporary life in Germany due to the fact that Fritz was Jewish and was alarmed at the rapid rise of Nazism and that even his wife, Thea von Harbaugh, had become a party member. Did not know that either. So his wife was a Nazi. <laughs> well, I mean, the Nazi party didn't start off like we're against Jews. It didn't start out that way. It kind of grew. And then, right. But it's main, you know, it's always, they've always targeted, they blame the Jewish people for everything. Well, no, I think what you do is that basically if you go through a huge recession or if you're very, if your country goes through a very, very poor time, then what you do is you find a subgroup. Well, you find a subgroup in your society to blame things on, whether it's asylum seekers or immigrants moving to your country or Mexicans in America taking all our jobs away, even though they're jobs that no one else wants. And, you know, and whenever and when, and when everyone's living high, you don't have that. But when everything's kind of like everyone's starting to struggle, then all these people are taking our jobs. Look at that. They got more money than we do. They got more opportunities than we do. And it just kind of, you know, it's kind well, of. Well, I think that they're kind of, their business acumen was was very they want to make money. They knew how to make money. So. It's 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 funny because last night somebody messaged me because I'd never read this, but apparently in Victoria Price's book about her father, Vincent Price, in the early days of of uh, of Nazism, was apparently pro Nazi, and it wasn't until he started seeing, like, oh my God, what's actually going on? Because you know, he, with him, it was all about. Well, no, of course he's Hitler. Hitler's going to make you know, Hitler's going to help uh, Germany rise up again. He's going to help make Germany great. And then when he saw what was happening afterwards, that's when it started to click in him that oh, wait a second, this isn't this isn't good. Yeah. Um, and it's I mean, what Hitler did basically when he first came into power is he got them out of the recession. He got he them did. out of the depression, and everyone was working and everyone was working high. But 
Well, what happens basically is you got to keep that momentum coming. And so what you do is, um, you know, and then you have the people who are disenfranchised. So what you do is you find someone to pinpoint and bl- to blame. It's always playing the blame game. Right. But yeah. we, do it in, we, we do it in politics now. We're always playing. Society, oh God, I mean, politics are always playing the blame game. It's always someone else's fault. In this country, it's labor's fault or it's the Tories' fault right. or whatever. Right. You just always look for someone to blame. But that's what we do in society. And that's what mm-hmm. I think that's what makes M quite interesting. Because yeah. it's, not, it's not about taking responsibility. It's always exactly. finding someone to blame. That's was this okay? Was this this was like a, say, it's a lot easier to say it's this person's fault right. that my life sucks rather than I didn't do what I needed to do to achieve the goals that I wanted right. to achieve. Therefore, it's this person down here, it's this group over here. That group's holding me back. That group's holding me back. Is this the German mafia kind of sorta? Or is I mean, there's, there doesn't seem to be like I don't think. Well, that, that guy, any, like, the guy with the trench coat on, the, the leather jacket, he looks so Gestapo-ish. I, I was trying to figure out what the hell they were going for. The I don't feel like there's any like real like. I mean, there there is some some level of organization, but I don't feel like they were all part of like the state. Well, it's not like the like the Italian. I think it's like mob, you know. I think it's like we got to take care of this person because I mean it's more like we got to get rid of this guy who's killing all these kids. Right. I think that's what it is more than anything. I don't think they well, were Well, in like, the 51 movie, I mean, I think I caught a little bit of it in this one too. They're talking about how they need to beat them before the police get them. Yeah. So I don't well, know if that ingratiates well, them and the populace. No, basically, but that basically that 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 basically, if you look at our prison society today and how people think of our prison society today, is that okay? If you get like a pedophile and the pedophile goes to prison, what do we think? Oh, they're not going to go. They're not going to die or anything like that. They're going to be out within five years and then they're going to do it again. So with the criminal uh, underworld, knowing that basically that this person, you know, oh, they'll put them in a. I think they say it here. They'll put them in a. You know, psychiatric unit, and then right. he'll be well in a couple of years, and he'll be back out on our street. Yeah, that's what. He, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, and they, they repeat that a few times. Yeah, and what's yeah. and what's quite interesting, if you look at some of the social themes within um, Fritz Lang's M, all those ideolo- ideologies about criminals and all that stuff are very much alive in our society today. We still are living with all this stuff today. It's not yeah. like we've grown it all in the last. What, no, it's God. always been there. This this film's almost this is almost you know hundred years old. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's that that's, it's still yeah it still resonates today, which is most relevant. It's still relevant. Amazing. Hmm. What about yourself, Davi? What are your thoughts about? <laughs> what What are your thoughts on him? Um, okay, so it was a very interesting movie. Uh, uh, as all as always, a not violent enough psychology. for you, was it? <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> Not violent enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I find very interesting the psychology of the movie. So, besides, I'm, I'm going to analyze first the technical side of the movie. So, it was um, interesting that they added this irritating whistle of the main character that very much felt like the soundtrack of the character. So, you, you kind of felt like, okay, you hear the whistling and the character is somewhere to be seen. Um, and then obviously there was also interesting the fact that you could say <laughs> you could see the um the analysis of the police like when they were trying to investigate 
um, the case and trying to find the clues and analyzing the letters of how the guy wrote everything. It, it was a very analytical movie in terms of like the study of the crime from the police side, uh, like a, almost like a documentary. So that was interesting, uh, but that was just the technical side. Uh, I find fascinating the social analysis of, of the society at the time. So clearly this is like a reflection, like um, a mirror of what the society probably was back in the days, nearly 100 years ago. Um, I find interesting when there was this discussion of when they were saying, oh, at this, the mother's first duty to guard children from danger. And then they started listing all the baits of, of which they were supposed to protect children from. You know, it's kind of like it was an analysis in and society and society roles of the ideas of what the family roles and what the mother is supposed to do, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That was quite interesting. More interesting, I found even the sort of witch hunt that there was that started rising um, because they had no clue who the murderer was. So they started analyzing and blame well, not analyzing, just blaming emotionally and person or another or another, just to find like a sort of a scapegoat. That makes you feel like, okay, so you kind of like can see them. There is a sort of like template that repeats through our history, and then like like Keith, you said, it's kind of like when there is a social situation in society or during history, when suddenly things go wrong, then we go back in the old ways when we start blaming the first thing that comes into our head or the first thing that we think is the the villain or the the enemy, whatever you know. Um, but fascinating was also the fact that there was this sort of like organized crime. Um, it wasn't really specified what sort of organized crime it was, um, but the fact that they were looking at themselves like, oh, but we're doing business, you know, where we're not like that. We're, they were kind of like dissociating themselves from that criminal because, you know, that's a, a child murderer. But at the same time, it makes you question as well. When they started organizing the hunt and trying to organize them a way to try to find the murderer, um, were they doing it because of ethical reasons? Or were they doing it because they business-oriented that was affecting them? That's what I was wondering, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. there was something in it for them to get this Exactly. Guy. That's exactly what I thought. So it's kind of like in in interesting. So there is a psychological analysis and ethical analysis of like, oh, you know, because this is wrong. But at the same time, you, also, you have to wonder what they're doing actually because it's convenient for them to get rid of this because they look bad and that's affecting their business. It's definitely like a very interesting uh, analysis of the societies of uh, back in the days, obviously, in, in, the, in the Germany back in the days. Um, and then also, obviously, there's, you know, the mistrust of the police, the, the organized crime right. is doing everything themselves, etc. And then the final scene of the final judgment was very, very emotional. A little bit disturbing, like the way that the main, that the main character, the, you know, the, the murderer was overreacting, explained that he can, can't stop himself about killing people and everything. And then there's kind of like this mob of people getting angry at him and wanting him to be killed. And then the defender wanting a fair trial for him. He seems so helpless for a murderer, though. You, you, yes. You yes. can't say your empathy, Jane, and I don't know why. You it's, start getting a little oh. bit like, yeah, but you feel sorry. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but he's been a, he's just a child murderer. Yeah. And obviously, that's wrong. But at the same time, it kind of makes you, at least that the emotional reaction I had for myself is like, okay, this is why we have justice. This is why there's a law and we have a system that's, okay, so he's a child murderer. He's a piece of crap, whatever you want to call it. Right. At the same time, he deserves a fair trial because obviously there will be the law dealing with it, not just random people killing him because they decided to do so emotionally, you know? 
Um, so it was very, very fascinating movie, specifically for the psychology of human behaviors, basically. Like, you know, they usually they say history is based on the philosophies of running in the veins of cultures and countries, etc. But behind the philosophies of how people think or politics run, etc., I always see at the roots the psychology of human tendencies and behaviors. Um, like, for example, in here, you can you can you, you could do like a study on the compulsive murderer behavior of the sick man or the way the organized crime decides how to act and not to act because it's, there's a psychology behind it in terms of like survival instinct, obviously based on the society of that time of, you know, like starvation. Child murderers are the worst kind, you know. Well, I mean, it's, it's also yes. an easy emotional way to get people. Um, to start attacking people you you want them to attack. Uh, the, yeah. A couple of years ago, when the whole Wayf- uh, what was it Wayfair, people were fucking convinced stupidly. Some wackadoodle thought that uh, Wayfair, the uh, the um, what's it called Wayfair, the um, the cabinet makers were like uh, trafficking children, and there was that whole th- there were people like attacking like Wayfair vans and stuff like that. And I'm like, dude, there's. No, you're basing this on nothing. And this movie's very much against that whole mob mentality, which is another thing yeah. Fritz Lang does a lot is, is going against the whole mob mentality thing. Um, and you also have the police. If you look at the juxtaposition, the police are actually finding like real clues and they're they're tracking the killer down, but they're doing it, you know, based on evidence. They're going, oh, okay, there's the red pencil, uh, the red pencil shavings over here. There's the oh on you know, the windowsill. Yeah, he's writing yeah, it on this kind of table. No, he's not. He's writing it on a windowsill. He's doing this. Yeah. He's doing that. So the police are coming about it that way, while the mob is coming at it from a point of just, this is what it is. We're going after this person. This we is see, see two system. systems. Yeah, he sees two systems, one separate from each other, like running parallel to each other, and then doing the same thing. It makes you feel like the justice system and the justice system based on emotions. Did he write the letters on, in red pencil? You know, is that? Uh, yes. I think like a corrective red pencil because yeah. I'm, yeah. you know what I, I, I was wondering well I guess that makes me not feel sorry for Peter Lorre so much because it was premeditated and he was going to keep going well, well he was I, I mean he basically was doing a Zodiac killer I mean he's kind of prologue right that's what killer. yeah exactly wasn't he writing to the press and everything like that and, well it's I, I don't feel like the murders themselves were premeditated. I feel like he just kind of gave up and went, look, this is just how I am and I'm just going to do it. Um, like, I don't feel like he, he planned it out. Like he went out, like I'm going to go out today and kill somebody. I feel like he just kind of understood that that's just how, I think he wanted to get caught too, in a I way. Mean, well, I mean, an it interesting thing. That way. Well, an interesting thing about this film is because uh, it's 1931, that if you look at the criminal mind of serial killers, Serial killers is that's what draws them. That's what there's. And basically something that can never be cured. Yeah. So if you think, so if you think that Jeffrey Dahmer lived, he'd be, he still have that urge. John Wayne Gacy still have that urge. Ted Bundy would still have that urge. And the list goes on and on and on to the fact that basically, I mean, um, Ed Kemp said he hopes they never let him out because there's no way that he could ever, that he'll just start back where he left off. Well, look at the the child murder we had in our own hometown was we when we were children. He he went. They let him out after twenty five years. Bam! Started killing prostitutes. But the thing the thing is also is is that um, and this is what's quite interesting in Fritz Lang's M is is that basically the criminal underworld when he's sitting there going oh you know I can't help it uh, and he's 
pleading for his life. And they go, and they said, oh, well, you do send to a psychiatric hospital because there's no, there's no cure for him. It's never going to be cured. And the thing is, what they were saying is the truth. So the question basically is, is that, and then you have to think of it this way, which is quite interesting as well, whether you believe in the criminal system or not, the problem basically is, is that let's sit there and say that, okay, they take him to court, you know, now, now we're looking at hundreds of thousands of pounds to go on trial to convict this guy who's guilty. Then you have to think that the common criminal that that you put in the prison year on and year out cost the taxpayers 18 to 20,000 per prisoner. Back then, it costs a whole lot more now. (laughs) But what, no, but I'm saying, like, if you look at it nowadays, so then the thing is, is so what you do is you're you're basically we're paying to keep this person alive that they're never going to be seen the light of day. Now, is that right or wrong? So I'm not, I'm not saying either one of this is right or wrong, but the question is, is that I find it very interesting that Fritz Lang in 1931's M raises those questions. Right. And so you can, you see both sides of this. You see that both was sides kind of, of brilliant. That's of the movie. great thing about this movie is he shows, he shows both sides of the argument and it's. He does. It's, yeah, he does. he does. And it doesn't, it doesn't offer you a solution at the end of the movie. This, the trial starts and you don't see how it goes. And there's yeah. only the side of the mother say, even though the trial is on, that's not going to bring yeah, my children true. back. I was yeah. just about to bring that, that up because I was like, back to back to Davide's point that mothers at the end are going, this isn't going to bring our children back. It doesn't matter. It doesn't bring them back. No, but I would, if someone killed my child, I would want an eye for an eye. I would, if it was my child. Well, the question basically is, is that if he gets out, what happens when he goes, you know, let's sit there and goes, he gets caught in criminal and they get let him out and he starts murdering other children then what yeah. happens yeah but a lot of times i don't know if this is true in the 1930s or not uh if you if you did something to harm a child and you went to prison a lot of times those you prisoners, still do nowadays nowadays definitely i don't know about the 30s but nowadays yeah the the other criminals i think that's always i don't think there's any, even among hardest hardest criminals a crime against a child is probably even i mean we see that here <laughs> we do see that here you still do. Yeah, well, these, these criminals like this guy is, you know, a menace. Well, this film is also a prototype to um, the mafia films that we get later or right. um, the crime underground because of what we get, what you get in every crime underground film. This was a ceiling breaker for those kind of movies. It well, really was. Even if you look at like Scarface or The Godfather or, you know, or, you know, Dirt, you know, James Cagney ones and if you look at the criminal underground it's always that they may do all this horrible stuff but they still have a moral they there is a morality that they have there's a moral code that they stick to and if you break away from that moral code then every you get you know the punishment full force against you and I thought that was quite interesting because in 1931 I don't think we have a lot of films that give us that underground moral code and they were saying god damn it and stuff like that i i mean the subtitles say god damn it i was left like oh my god they're saying that now but that well yeah they they didn't have the restrictions we did in the u.s even pre-code you still couldn't say you couldn't say fuck or shit or any of that on on no but they were when they said shit in this one too i was laughing like oh my god they swore back see i've never seen that in a subtitled movie before so it was really kind of it was really kind of a first for me watching this because I had not watched this particular movie before. I like watching the movies I've never seen because knowing what I know now and after talking to you guys, I always learn something. I say that every podcast because you guys are a walking encyclopedia, both you and Joe. You both freaking know everything about stuff. <laughs> but um, 
Did you what did you think about the film? What kind of film were they using for this? I think I think there was some kinescope used in in some of it. You think it was kinescope? Some of it, I think, was when you when you see it when it has that flicker to it. Using kinescope continually up until the sixties, didn't they? Um, Dark Shadows had kinescope, didn't it? Well, I find kinescope in the in the silent to thirties is when the film has that flicker to it. Right, and I noticed the film had that bit of a flicker every once in a while. But I think I, I think there was a I think it I think he was marrying two different versions, two kind of film gotcha. techniques together. It didn't really look grainy, but it was beautifully shot, though. I mean, the the Germans in uh, in many ways, like po- post World War One, you know, like if you look at the Universal uh, Horror Cycle, a lot of it is taken from. German expressionist films and filmmakers like Fritz Lang, uh, like um, God, what is his name that uh, made uh, *Cabinet of Dr. Caligari*? Uh, uh, Ween, uh, like Lang, like Ween, like uh, like they kind of invented what would become the horror film for a while, and this movie kind of has that too. It's all the it's all, and um, um, F.W. Murnau. How did I forget him? Um, yeah. But you always have that kind of shadowy the shadowy grainy, dark lighting and everything grainy. like that well it's kind of like a shadow but what he does is it's a, a shadow that kind of comes across but then there's an oppressiveness that seems like there's something sinking on top of everything yeah. so you have like the shadow and this this and then it feels like the, the everything's punching down on top of you it wasn't a feel-good so, movie there's no warm fuzzies about it at no all. <laughs> there definitely uh, <laughs> which might be why like you, the, you know no matter how much i love it this is you know, my second time seeing it in like 25 years because it's not a movie that like, like it's a real downer of a movie. It's not a movie where I'm like, oh, hey, I'm going to go watch M. You know? I know. You know? Like I'm going to lift my spirits right up and go watch some old movies. Yeah, it does. It's not uplifting at all. Like, like there's no, there's no, there's nothing fun about this movie. Like oh. it's, it's a great movie, but. <laughs> Except not... watching Peter Laurie. I've always found him fascinating to watch. Don't ask me why. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny to hear those Peter Laurie um, voice characteristics in German. Yeah, she's so used to like the way he sounds in English, and that then he would catch but his voice. He does like, speak oh, German. That was him speaking. No, no, that's what I'm saying. But the thing is, because you're so used to Peter, because Peter Lorre has a unique voice. Right. He always yeah, had a he unique does. voice. Yeah, he does. You know. Yeah, and the thing is, and then to hear him actually say have that same unique ver- ver- tape, you know, in German as well. So it wasn't just his English accent. So it was nice. basically that, that's the way that's the way he sounded. Well, he looks like a human bullfrog. Well, I know, but when he's like, when especially when he juts his chin out and you see him from the side, all you see is white on black pupil. I mean, he's oh, just yes. pupils. I mean, he's t- he's so expressive with his, his face and his eyes. I mean, he's hard not to watch. You got to watch him. I think the first movie I saw him in was a movie called The Comedy of Terrors, which was um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jacques Tournoir from, you know, he's the old uh, RKO director was doing this horror comedy with Peter Lorre, Vincent Price, Boris yeah. Karloff and Basil Rathbone. And I, that was great. He was great so doing comedic timing. He yeah. is so perfect. Even in comedy. Um, he's like, I, I've grown a, a fondness for him. I always did. I love him. Between this, between his movies with his movies at Warner, all the you know the different crime movies and war movies, and he's you know of course he's um, he's Ugarte in Casablanca, um, 
he's just so like you said he's, he's so expressive his I mean, face is so I mean, expressive he's fantastic in arsenic and old lace he really is <laughs> yeah. That really whole movie, is. we should cover that. That's one of my favorite old movies. Uh, I love that movie. I love it. I mean, yeah, that's one of the best. Edward Everett Horton, and I mean, he's got a you don't get a better lineup cast. than that. Cary <laughs> Grant at his best as well. Yeah, Cary. Yeah, well, yeah, Cary Grant in the early '40s is like peak Cary Grant. So that's that's yeah. phenomenal too. And Raymond Massey playing Boris Karloff, really. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, put, I mean, you know, it's interesting that Peter Laurie would actually go to America and have a, you right. know, a decent career there as well. Was he also trying to escape the Nazis? Is yeah. that it? He didn't yeah, a lot, of them were. a lot of them were. Uh, a lot Kurtzies. of the people did not want no parts of that. They came, especially the actors. A lot of them fled yeah. to come over here. Uh, Michael Curtiz, uh, Kurt and Robert C. Odmack, um, Ingrid Bergman. A lot. Yeah. Well, Ingrid Bergman was yeah. Swedish, so I don't know. Or she might have just become a star, and that's the reason she came over. But the, but there were so many actors well, and directors and everything from that time period that it, we I had. Lori like, was Hungarian anyway. Yeah. So. Well, they did invade. They Austrian, did invade I Hungary, thought. So, yeah. Okay, so Peter Lori was Jewish. He he was Jewish and fled Germany in fear of Nazi persecution shortly after this movie came out. Fritz Lang, who was half Jewish, fled two years later. Yeah. And it said, and although he, he was thrilled to play such a major part, Peter Lorre came to hate it later as people tended to associate him with being a child murderer in real life. So kind of stigmatized him for a while. Well, I think I, I, found it, I found that a bit weird because his next film would be Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Right. Yeah. So was that his I'm next surprised. one? There wasn't anything in between? No, that was because he moved to because he moved to no, he moved from Germany to America after that. Right. And when was that movie made? Nineteen thirty-four. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that's 31. a bit of a it's a bit of a time jump. Well, it says two years. He must have made another movie over there, but he said he fled. He was afraid of this particular movie coming out. See, now the Germans, I think, sat on this. They they put this movie on ice to like nineteen thirty-six for some reason. Do. They they had they they put it secluded somewhere and it didn't get played for a while. Um, it was it was voted one of the most twenty five most dangerous movies. Why? For whatever. Um, reason. The reason why the reason why it took him so long because when the Nazis came to power in nineteen thirty three after the film it was came banned out, from thirty four to, to sixty six. He had um, Peter Laurie had to take refuge first in Paris and then London and then um, he was noticed by Ive. Ivor Manikoff and Alfred Hitchcock was filming um, The Man Who Knew Too Much and sent him to America to film that with Alfred Hitchcock. Hmm. So, yeah, so they the did. Why. It was banned in Germany from so 1934 was, to 1966. That's when it came back out. So he was kind of living like Victor Laszlo in, in Casablanca, just kind of bouncing around from place to place, Kinda. averting the Nazis. Well, yeah, basically outrunning them because he, I, I might, he probably went to Paris and then as they were entering Paris and he moved. <laughs> yeah, like I said, like Victor yeah. Lasso in Casablanca, he's yeah. bouncing from place to place. And Laurie yeah. doesn't see, is that his original name? Is that his name name? I or believe is that so. I mean, it doesn't sound very Jewish to me for some reason. But... No, he's born Laszlo Lo uh, Lowenstein. Okay, well, oh, that's yeah. Jewish. Okay, yeah, I would have been yeah. too. Now, um, 
the interesting thing is that the last scene where you see Peter Lorre being pushed down the stairs. Right. Fritz, oh, yeah. Um, they Fritz, did that to him on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Fritz Lang pushed him down the stairs because apparently Several Fritz times. Lang was quite temperamental on his film sets. I heard, well, from what I read, he was really hardcore to work with and he was a real jack wagon to be nice about it. He was yeah, hardcore. When, for. Um, have you guys seen The Black Cat, the Lugosi Karloff movie from uh-huh. uh, 1934? Yeah. The Karloff character, Edgar Ulmer, who was um, an assistant to Fritz Lang for a long time, said that uh, he, he made him a sociopath in the way that Fritz Lang was a sociopath on yeah. his sets. That, that was the Boris Karloff character. He was based on, on Fritz Lang. <laughs> who was it? This is the I'm, last I'm not getting, No, sorry. Peter Lorre did The Man Who Knew Too Much in England. He filmed that in Alfred Hitchcock in England. So it wasn't okay. America that he went to. He didn't get to America tonight, 35, because then he did Alfred Hitchcock's Secret Agent after that. Fritz Lang did the whistling, too, because Peter Laurie couldn't whistle. Oh, I didn't know that. All right. In the Hall of the Mountain King. <laughs> uh, they, also, but, uh, they also did that in the, uh, in the Black Vampire. The, the killer was identified the same way, um, except in the Black Vampire, they did it much, much later in the movie. Here they established it early on. Um, but in the Argentinian version, they did it towards the end. And it was in the Hall of the Mountain King also. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of kind of shocking to me because I, I remember messaging you guys because I was looking up this movie. I was like, oh, this is apparently a remake of M. And Keith was like, wait, the Black Vampire is a remake of M? And then when I watched, I was like, yeah, this is definitely a remake of M. Um, also worth seeing, by the way. It's very Isn't good. There like three, two remakes of this, 1951 and something else? Um, there's... I think there's a 2000 one. Official, the only official remake. What was there? A 2000 one? I don't know. I, I thought I, I saw something like that. Um, the Black Vampire from 1950 was an Argentinian film. Um, the Tenderness of Wolves by Uli Lamel was 1973, but that's not an official remake. It's just based on based on the same character, um, or based on the same um, uh, the same series of murders. So. I, I think 51, as far as I know, is the only like actual like official remake. Right. Mm. I mean, I don't think I mean, I don't think you're ever going to have a successful remake of M anyway. Because Not like this. this. Well, I think this film works on so many tiers and it's so much to film of its time. But at the same time, to be able to put all this social commentary into a. Yeah. Almost, you know, less than two hour piece and right. to be able to balance it so well balanced. I don't really think you could be able to do that. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, I just think that um, you just kind of need, you know, the different filming techniques and the way they've done. And I think, you know, the silent bits in it helps the audience feed into more than, than what we talk with a bunch of talking going on. And I think that's probably what feeds M. So therefore you have that fuller understanding and able to do it. I think if you're going to make it today, I think you would have to do it like in a two-part film because you, everyone would have to have their say. And, and you, couldn't, you couldn't do it by feeling. You'd have to do it by vocal. I think that's probably another mm. reason. Which I, yeah, which, yeah. I, I, I like that this film told the story very visually. This is again, like we, we talked about... Um, God, what movie were we talking about? Where uh, I, I think it was Scarface last week, actually. Which again, a killer whistling. Um, there's so much visual storytelling in this. Like it's it's so much of it. It's like 
we were talking about Scarface and we're talking about this movie now that it like if you were to watch this with the sound turned all the way down and no subtitles, you'd still be able to get a general idea of what was going on because just mm -hmm. everything, everything about the way Fritz Lang shot it is so amazingly visual. I mean, of course he was a silent film director. So of course he knew how to make, uh, you know, how to, how to get the point across without any dialogue. Right. But didn't it give you I, like an idea that it felt like almost like watching a documentary of the time? Sort of. Yeah, right? that's why I also thought there was a documentary aspect of this film as well. Like if you, you, know, if you look at space, you can't get that. Yeah, Absolutely I mean, not. if you look at the newsreels from that time period, like when you went to movies, all newsreels, it's kind of filmed like the newsreels at that time. Yeah. You know, the silent bits and all you was missing is like, you know, on the war and they don't know. I, I cannot. Children are working in factories as they're building nuclear war for the American apartheid. <laughs> I, I cannot get over how just eerie the whole thing is. Like uh, just early on in the movie, where just everybody's gathering in the gathering in the streets, and there's just no sound. You don't even hear them walking. There's nothing. It's just a. Oh, yeah, it's just yeah. a sound void. Um, I just I. I love that so much. It just adds such a quality to it that nowadays, nowadays you don't have this. Do you don't have it in modern movies. You have to have a soundtrack for every. Can I just say it for every fucking thing you see? I I adore when you have like certain old movies when you have certain scenes and the silence. It gives you tension. It gives you uh, time to focus and to think about what's going on. Instead, the emotions sometimes that are pushed towards with music and soundtracks are so overwhelming that you are forced into a specific direction. Sometimes without the soundtrack, it gives you the, I don't know, it gives me the idea of like, oh, you have freedom to decide what to think in that moment, if that makes sense. It gives you space yeah. to think and time and to I, think. I, 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 find say a crutch. I find it's a crutch now. Soundtracks yeah. are a crutch. Okay, this, we want you to feel this. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's so forced. It's like I know that this is going to happen, but just let me feel it. And instead, it's enforcing to you. It's like okay, I get it. But well, I think it's yeah. also it's 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 a cheap, easy way to fill in when you're not able to tell the story uh, visually. Yeah. Um, and I, I I don't remember what the movie was, but I remember watching a movie recently, and I remember. I was watching it with Sean. I was I was on the couch watching it with Sean. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, "Why does it have to be so fucking noisy?" Yes. Like, yeah, what? Like, can can we not just enjoy like the visual aspect of it? Everything, every movie now just has to be bang, 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 bang. That's true. That is so true. It is gives you a headache sometimes. And the music, yeah. the music's also like bang, 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 bang. But it's, it's not only the visual, it's also sometimes you, it depends on the movie. Sometimes you can feel, have time to feel the emotions of the character. So, for example, uh, this is a personal favorite. So, do you know a very old movie called The Ring? I did not like the American version. I watched the original Japanese version. The Japanese Ring, one Ring. is definitely better. It is. A billion, billion times better. Every time I watched it, I watched it in the original language. And there are certain scenes at the beginning of the movie when you have the characters sitting down, just, just a minute of nothing, just the characters sitting, thinking, whatever, and you have complete silence. In that moment, you feel the emotions, you feel the tension, you feel what's going on in that moment. You feel like you are there with the character. There's no music involved. I love that. I miss that in movies so much. 
When there's um, too much soundtrack, it's too much sometimes. I, I have a funny story about the, 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 the 1998 version of The Ring because it wasn't available in the United States. So I had to get a bootleg VHS tape of it uh, to be able to watch it. And I remember, you know, I, I remember getting as far as uh, Sadako coming out of the TV. I remember that, but I was watching it really late at night in my bedroom. I was living in my parents' house. I was like 17, 18 years old. <laughs> And I remember that I fell asleep during the movie, but I remember all the, you know, all the static and everything just before Sadako comes out of the TV and everything like that. I fell asleep and because it was a VHS tape, it just kept going and then eventually it just became static. So that woke me up and I almost like, <laughs> I thought it was, it like, she's going to crawl out of the TV at me. <laughs> I remember thinking that like, it was like 16, 17 years old. It was a genuine creepy movie. That scared is. me. That scared me, to be honest. It is. I didn't like the. I didn't like the sequels to it. I do like the American remake. I think, as far as like, I love it. I. I but I is, think the Japanese version is scarier for some reason. The, that yeah, movie the re- fucked me up. That is one of the very few movies that fucks me up. It's stuff like that because I, it just when she's when she's in the bed, you see the lump of the bed, and you know she's in there, and you're gonna see the. That freaking noise she makes, like no. I, I love I love Hideo Nakata's movies because I, I also liked his. I, well, he directed both versions of Dark Water, which are both I like. Yeah, both versions. yeah, oh, that's another you know, one. Yes. Um, you have the Japanese version of Dark Water as well. I, I like both, but yeah, the Japanese mm-hmm. one is eerier. There's one that was never remade. Uh, he made it like before even the ring called Ghost Actress. Uh, that was really that eerie, one. and I remember that played on like uh, it played on like IFC late one night. So I was like, "Oh, okay, let me." I set up a I set up a timer to record it because I was like, I, "I need to I need to watch this movie because I had already seen The Ring," and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is an earlier movie by him. That's really eerie too." He's he was another like I, is he still working? He made a lot of tremendous movies though, and I mean the the Ring remake that launched Gore Verbinski, who went on to you know do the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah. And- and that's, oh, that's a good stuff. thing. Why? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love Pirates of the Caribbean. Get off that. It's the a, first, it's a, it's the a nice one. The first one's fine, but they, go, they do go downward. I like the they, first two. After that, I kind of get tired of it. After anyone that. that uses Kira Knightley in any kind of film needs to be turned I outside and like shot. I actually like her in, in, in Pirates of the Caribbean. So. She's annoying. I, Everything about her is annoying. She's I, one of those it, people that... They, she's one of those people that... The media tells, "Oh, she's such a great actress," and I yet just have to see it. It's just like, "Oh, she's." Well, I have to say, itchy. she's a great actress, but she doesn't bother me. Yeah. But so. the media always, the media is always throwing her at us. Films are always throwing this person at us. Like, stop you throwing her at us. Her she's though, lately. I don't even. Oh, hopefully, he, hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully, the ground swallowed her up or something. I'm not <laughs> sure. But... <laughs> is she doing anything <laughs> yeah. nowadays? I don't remember. Any... She was on a she was on a TV show for a while, wasn't she? I don't know. I don't know, but she just every since Ben didn't like Beckham, it's like we couldn't get her. I mean, she just was doing everything. So, yeah. She was okay in Pride and Prejudice. That was okay. Oh, I yeah, love Pride and Prejudice. Playing. I love that movie so much. Oh, she's just Not if Kira Knightley's in it, apparently. Oh, she's uh, <laughs> he likes it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't. likes it. I, I don't I don't like historical dramas either, so I have I mean, no, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a massive fan, but I did see 
this might be like something like related to growth and everything. I'm but not I did gonna study... go out of my way to meet her. No, no. But for me, it's like I did study English literature when I was at school, and I fell in love with it. When we did romanticism, and then obviously, obviously, we get into uh, Pride and Prejudice, and we watched the movie in English for the first time. So when you, you can imagine, I grew up with the movies, and I watched this so many times, and every time I'm like there sobbing and crying, like oh my god, she loves him too. It's it's ridiculous, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, Jane Austen, what a fucking hack. I mean, what a fucking hack. She's not, every, every single one of her books is the same plot. Sense and Sensibility. Pride and like Sense and Sensibility is another one. Yeah. They're, they're all the same plot. Can't, can't, can't a girl dream. Come they on. They kind of are. They kind of uh, are. I'm in love. I'm in love with a man, but he doesn't have enough money. But this other man who's pursuing me. I have to go with a man with more money. But then they end up with a poor man anyway. It's like, okay. It's like it's Bridget Jones's diary, the modern yeah. version of it. So, so Kira Knightley, I forgot she was in that movie Silent Night, which I, I still haven't seen. It's kind of a, a horror comedy. Uh, where a family gets together for like a big Christmas while the apocalypse is going on. Uh, that, that came out like two years ago. That's that's the last thing that I remember her in. I forgot oh, she was God. in that. Is she silent in it? I might watch it. She's silent. She might die in it. <laughs> if she dies in it, will you watch it? Maybe oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole planet dies. I, I, I'm assuming the whole. I mean, I haven't seen it, so it's no. About but I, I would need. I need to watch her own murder scene. That's <laughs> what like. Up, I mean, I'll, if she's in, if she's in Hostel Four, I'll watch it. She's one of the victims. <laughs> Why did you write her into one of your scripts where she gets killed? Okay, I gotta be you honest, I wouldn't know. be able to pick her out of a lineup. I like, I, I never think watched. Got, I think she got married or something. I think that she's probably having children or something. That's probably what's happened to her. So she was so. pretty. She was very skinny. So, getting to ratings, how many stars would you give m starting with you vix oh i'd give this absolutely a five i loved it i like the cinematography and the, the whole story what about yourself david i would give it a four out of five that's just because i'm a bit biased and i don't like the movie of being too old i'm really sorry well we're gonna have to slap you up <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm just kidding <laughs> oh, no that's fair that's fair i get it i'm just uh, messing with you. Uh, five, one of the greatest movies ever made. It's it's phenomenal. And I'm going to give it a five as well because it, it, this kind of film reminds me of Boys Don't Cry where it's not one that I choose to watch, but it, whenever it's on, I can't stop watching it. Right. It's one of those. Yeah. It's, like, it's like watching a car crash. You just can't stop watching it sort of thing. Uh -huh. You just have to see it. <laughs> yeah, there, so. there's an atmosphere and a mood to this that just... Man, it's so uh, it's, it's a total Debbie Downer, but you have to watch it. I mean, it's sad. It's a really sad movie. It's dark. It's bleak. There's no happy moments. I, I, I mean, there's a few comedic things in there with the, the you know, the secondary characters. Some of them were just funny, but <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a nice yeah. it was a sad topic. 
definitely a very dark movie. But there was a, a, a slide funny scene when the was was the police officer trying to interview two people and trying to get the color of the hat of the guy. And then these two old men arguing about being green and yeah, being red, red. And then the joke green. about one being a colorblind. And there was supposedly like a funny scene. There was like very mild, obviously. But I think there was a sort of attempt to make it a little bit of ironic or something. I don't know. But yeah, generally very, very dark, very well, it was a dark time, wasn't it? So. Yeah. Dark time now. Going from one neo-noir classic to another, we cover Badlands, which is a 1973 American neo-noir period crime drama film written, produced, and directed by Terrence Malick. In its directorial debut, the film stars Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek and follows Holly Sargis, a 15-year-old who goes on a killing spree with her partner, Kit Crothers. The film also stars Warren Oates and Raymond Berry. While the story is fictional, it is loosely based on the real-life murder spree of Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fuget, in 1958. Badlands was released in 1973 to positive reviews from critics who partially praised the cinematography soundtrack, which includes pieces of Karoff, and the lead performances at the 59th British Academy Film Awards, Spacek was nominated for the most promising newcomer to leading film role award at the San Sebastian International Film Festival. Sean Sheen won the Best Actor Award. Badlands was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry as a culturally, historically, and ethically significant by the Library of Congress in 1993. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer of Badlands and be right back. He was 25 years old. He combed his hair like James Dean. He was very fastidious. People who littered bothered him. She was 15. She took music lessons and could twirl a baton. I'm Kit. I'm not keeping you from anything important, am I? No. She wasn't very popular at school. For a while, they lived together in a treehouse. In 1959, they murdered a lot of people. Of course, I had to keep all this a secret from my dad. He would have had a fit since Kit was 10 years older than me and came from the wrong side of the track, so-called. I don't want you to hang around anymore. I don't want to see you again. Understand? Then, sure enough, Dad found out I'd been running around behind his back. He was madder than I'd ever seen him. He made me take extra music lessons every day after school and wait there till he came to pick me up. He said that if the piano didn't keep me off the streets, maybe the clarinet would. My girl Holly and I decided to kill ourselves, same way I did her dad. Nobody's coming out of this thing happy, especially not us. I can't deny we've had fun, though. We hid out in the wilderness, down by a river in a grove of cottonwoods. It being the flood season, we built our house in the trees. We planned a huge network of tunnels under the forest floor, and our first order of business every morning was to decide on a new password. He gave me lectures on how a gun works, how to take it apart and put it back together again in case I had to carry on without him. He said that if the devil came at me, 
I could shoot him with a gun. Hey. Listen to your parents and teachers. They got a line on most things, so don't treat them like enemies. There's always an outside chance you can learn something. Try to keep an open mind. Try to understand the viewpoints of others. Think I got them? I don't know. Well, I'm not going down there and look. Consider the minority opinion. But try to get along with the majority of opinion once it's accepted. Of course, Holly and I have had fun, even if it has been rushed. So far, we're doing fine. Hadn't got caught. Excuse the grammar. Welcome back to Literally the Podcast, and we're t- discussing Badlands from 1973. And starting with you, David, what are your thoughts of Badlands? Right, so the first time around I watched it, I had no idea what I just watched. Um, <laughs> this is obviously my personal opinion. So I did not understand. You have to know where Montana is. <laughs> there were, well, that, that for sure, I didn't know, but the, even the existence of our South Dakota, to be honest. Unfortunately, it, in Italy, we don't, they don't really teach us like American geography. So I had to go and research what South Dakota was, what Montana was. So it was quite a little bit of um, interesting geography lessons, uh, self lessons for myself. So that was cool. Um, <laughs> no, no, but generally, we, we, we generally don't know much about the, we generally study Europe and everything. But besides that, um, so I, I did not understand much of the story. So it, it felt like a sort of analysis of the evolution of a mind of a child from being a 15 years old girl, living with a father, being a very authoritarian father, obviously very protective, if I can imagine. And then obviously being killed and everything. And suddenly she gets kidnapped, some sort, sort of, I guess she gets kidnapped uh, by this 25 years old man who basically loves her. Obviously this is a kind of like a pedophile situation. And then she basically unaware of being kidnapped. She accepts all the, all the things that the guy basically keep tells her. Very naive. The right very naive, exactly. Anything. Yeah, yeah she, she's completely unaware of anything. She just accepts yeah, that she, they have to change name, that they have to move, that the guy's telling her, yeah. oh yeah, well, I'm supposed to kill this person because blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, okay, fair enough. And then suddenly there's like a something click and she's like, nah, I can't be bothered anymore. I'll just turn myself into the police. And you're like, well, okay. Meanwhile, the guy, seems to be obviously a criminal, but I don't really understand where all that criminal mind comes from. First of all, how does he fall in love with a 15 years old girl? He did. And obviously there must be some sort of- sort of like He doesn't have a backstory, mind. really, does he? There's not yeah, it's, it's not well, a typical yeah, villain does, with a backstory. He, he, does, he, back, he does have a backstory, he's on parole. Well, yeah, so obviously he's, he's 25. Oh, okay. He's 25. He's um he's doing these jobs because he's on parole, but I think that you're missing one important element of this film. Huh. Is that you're seeing that you're seeing the story from her point of view, right? But what's the last thing he says to her before he goes to the, before they sentence him to death? Go to school. <laughs> no, whatever you do, don't worry about it. I'll take all the blame. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of like Alice with Alice situation. 
So what, yeah, but, mm-hmm. but I think another thing that's quite interesting if compare this to M is that M is at the end of World War I and this is what's happening in Europe. This is at the end of World War II. Now, the thing is, is yes, America was like, yeah, aren't we great? And we had the 1950s. But what you also have in the 1950s is a disenfranchise yeah. because you've had women who had solid careers, who had to give up their careers to go back to the homes and they had the men. So you had a lot of these, unhappy life wasn't people. so much, a lot of unhappy people and a lot of displaced youth going on at this time sort of thing. So if you're 25 years old, that means your father, basically you were born as your father is going into the army. Don't know your father being raised in a single mother who's working all the time. So basically you're a latchkey kid coming back home father comes back home basically all of a sudden everything changes within the household situation and then you basically have a, a disillusioned youth and i know in a lot of 50s 50s was a sanitized version as far as films are concerned but if you look at the landscape that was going on at this time like in cold blood charles starkweather and the serial killer started to come started was born during this time period Oh, so and 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 you, and you had to think about teenage delinquents going on and the wild ones and all this other stuff was going on during this time period. You got the so though, thing going on too. Well, we and rebel without a cause, but but the thing is, we do have an idea of the fifties of being like happy days on the Vernon Shirley, right. but the and uh, leave it to Beaver Jeez. and Father knows best and all this other stuff going on, but like friends and like everything that we have today in our social construct of what American life is, we, you know, we, you know, it's a bit like foreigners understanding what American life is. So they think everything's PT keen and everything like this, but there's this darkness that's undergoing everything, which is the reality and Badlands is kind of giving you that reality. So yeah, there's this 50 aesthetic to it, but at the same time, there is this dark weave going through the American society. So you know, it's not all Bobby, you know, you know, poodle skirts and Bobby soccer, you know, yeah. Bobby soccer's mm. at this time. And I think Terrence Malick paints that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, what, so you got a protective father because his mother dies. But what you also get is Sissy's basic character going, you know, when, when, you know, Terrence Malick is putting all these scenes of 1950s America up on the screen. Oh. And she's like, I often wonder what my life would be like if, you know, my father wasn't protective. I hadn't met Kit. If my mother hadn't died from childbirth, you know, my mother didn't die early. If I, we stayed in Texas and you're getting all these positive images, but the realistic of America, the realism of America during that time period. So would you say what what you saw in the news, not what you're seeing, uh, not what you're seeing in film, but what you're seeing in film, you know, like Life Magazine and all this other Mm -hmm. stuff, these images that are popping up of real America. This is real America. But would you say that this criminal is kind of like the, well, first the product of its society, but at the same time, there's a sort of society situations, possibly even traumas affecting the behaviors of this person, because he goes on a killing spree, running away and kidnap this girl. And, and, and then he just makes up things as it goes, well, this sort this of adventure, is, makes up things, there's nothing stable, not, no solid plan. Well, this, well, this is what kind like, of decided on the go. This is what comes quite interestingly is not that you can have a serial killer. Most serial killers work alone. The question of is when they marry up with someone right. and how that go. Either it's Myra Hindley and Ian Brady or Rosemary Red, Fred West, or the you know the Hillside Strangler who teamed up with his uncle, um, or uh, or Stock you know Stockweather and 
was going, you know, this is loosely based on that. You know, he meets her, you know, he's not murdering anyone. As soon as these two people are together, for some reason, now they're going on a killing spree. So who's propagandizing? Who's who's leading this? And we tend to think that the female might be the innocent party because they're female and though they're so meek and mild, and they love life. But how do we not know that she they she might be the driving force forcing him? Or maybe he's the, you know, maybe he's leading the way and she's just following. So well, it's really, look, really hard to but as a figure out how it's a bit difficult to because she she doesn't have any experience in life or anything. I'm not saying that she's justified for whatever she did or whatever. Some of the worst killers and some of the worst killers in America and world history have been done by children. Well, I, I mean, in, in the case of this movie, and I don't know enough about the Starkweather case to to comment on what happened in real life, but in terms of this movie, at least, it really does seem like she was just going along with everything. But like you said, we're seeing it from her eyes, so this could be. Yeah. Her telling the story of oh I was completely innocent in this I was just a I was just a child being being led through uh, by, by this by this experienced man who was committing all these crimes so yeah we we don't know but at least for the purposes of, of this film it seems to me like he's just kind of leading the way but why did he pick uh, her I mean did you guys why do you think he picked her because she's so young and I don't know I don't even know if she's Naive. Well, she's obviously inexperienced with about a lot of things because that one pseudo scene where they basically had sex. She's like, "This is it." This yeah, is, is that all it? the big to do's about? Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, is like the question you have to ask basically is, is that at one she never stops him, she never tells him why did you do like, that? He stop killed her that. father. He doesn't. She doesn't seem to. She didn't stop him. She doesn't stop him. She doesn't get upset by it. No, not at all. She's very pathetic. Maybe, maybe she's got some sociopathy or some social. She doesn't movements. seem like she's got both oars in the water. She seems like a real lackadaisical. Well, maybe, or maybe she is, girl. but but remember, you got the story is told from her point of view. She's narrating right. what you're seeing. It's almost like yeah. a pulp fiction at this point. Well, so you could be you could be being led down down the road by a false navigator. Yeah. I can tell you a version of my life doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the true version of my right. life, is it? And and if you look at and um, what's also interesting, which kind of compares to M a little bit, it depends on who's in control of the narrative and who who you want to believe, sort of right. thing. So if you want people to believe a certain thing that you're innocent through all this, of course you're going to become not committal and you're going to be. You're going to be the kind of person that basically is just following along that you're not sure what's going on around you. And it's, you know, but at the same time, aren't you just as guilty if you're not trying to stop someone from doing something that you see wrong? Right. And don't your parent. And isn't the one thing that your parents tell you that's like, you know, you get off doing something with your friends and you know, it's wrong, but you're doing it with your friends yeah. and your mom. What's the first thing your mom tells you? Oh, if they all jumped off the bridge, would you jump off yeah. with them as well? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. How many times have our parents probably told I, that? I agree. But at the same times, and I'm not justifying, I'm only saying that she's very naive. She's very young, unexperienced, and it's very difficult to understand right from wrong when you're very, very, very young. She's got something mental going on because she. Yes, that's that what part I think that well. feels is not working. Yeah, exactly. She feels brain. very neutral, very neutral, very robotic into the thing the father does, and she's like, "Oh, is he okay?" 
What did you guys <laughs> think like about their? Trying. What did you all think about their treehouse existence on the side of wherever that was, highway or wherever they were? Because you could obviously see cars moving from there, and they're living like an old married couple, like naturally. With I mean, they're like the blue lagoon of white trash, you know? <laughs> out, out in the middle of whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a bit of Lord of the Flies in there as well. A little and, bit, a little bit. I mean, I lo- I mean, I, I quite like Terrace Malick anyway. I like the way that you kind of get this in Bonnie and Clyde a little right. bit, the way the filming, but he's got like this kind of, but kind of reminds me of M in a little way that it does have that kind of documentary kind of feel that it's just like a slice of life and you're kind of just watching this and they don't feel, and they don't feel like they're acting. And that's what I quite like. You get this realistic acting. It is kind of a natural fluid kind of thing going on between them. To the point where they feel like they're ad-libbing. I don't think they are. I mean, there is a script. But they feel like they're ad-libbing, that they're basically... Well, he was 30 when he made the movie, and I believe she was 20 when she did this part. So they weren't totally kids. So, And he did look like James Dean, kind of, sort of. I think that's what Malik was going for, too, actually. Or at least uh, least Estevez was. You mean she? I mean, (laughs) she, yeah. Uh, Estevez being his real name, though. Yeah, Yeah, probably, probably. I don't know why but you I mean, keep that name. But I find what I find interesting about Badlands is that you're kind of looking at this American road movie, and th- and Badlands would basically be the template for Natural Born Killers. It right. would be the template for Thelma Louise. It would be the template for all these other movies that are now American classics. And you yeah. could tell they all and they all have a nod to Badlands. How is he such a, he's a director, but he's also a reclusive. He's really a private, he was a private man anyway. I mean, how did he manage being that? I don't know. I guess it's worth shy. Well, he, didn't, he, didn't ple- well, he didn't believe in playing the Hollywood game. I mean, well, maybe so. He didn't even go to the Cannes Festival, I don't think, when his film came out in it, did he? No. Because to him, it was about the art, not about the film. Right. I don't know. Wouldn't you say Bonnie and Clyde was probably the the, the, the prototype, though, for the road movie? I would think Bonnie and Clyde. I can see where this could be, but Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, they, this. Well, I mean, they came out within like five years of each other. So, but well, I think Bonnie, Bonnie and Cl- Bonnie and Clyde feels like when you watch Bonnie and Clyde, and whether you're watching Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway and right. all the actors in it, there you could tell that it feels like a Hollywood movie because they're, they're, you could tell that everyone's acting. That's true. That is true. And in, and in Badlands, you feel like you don't feel like they're acting. And again, remember when this movie came out, no one knew who Martin Sheen or Sister Basic, Basic was at all. These were these are like their first kind of film. Is it like their breakout thing. movie kind of sort of? Old. No, wait, did uh, Martin Sheen? He'd already done the little girl that lived down the lane, or was this? No, like, no, no, this, this is, is before. This is before. This is before he, that. Because the only right. the only bigger movie, the only big movie he made before this was the subject was Roses. That's yeah. probably the only the only other like movie that like he like had any, but yeah, Sissy Spacek. This is pre Carrie. This is, you know, this is her uh, first movie. This is her first movie. She was up for best newcomer for this film. Oh, this is her first movie. Period. Yep. I I I, I knew this was early in her career. I didn't realize this was the first one. I didn't Man, know. I knew Mark- she was twenty at that time. So you know, I thought well, she, she always looked young. She yeah she she looks it's, like a kid. No matter she still the, looks like a kid. It's the I mean, freckles. It's, it's yeah. you know, it, it makes her, it makes her look so, so young and so innocent. 
And you could see why De Palma cast her in Carrie. Because she They said that this movie was technically, you know this probably better than me, Joe, a road movie. It said it's a form which breaks filmmakers free of tight plotting and opens them to whatever happens along the way. They can introduce and dispose of characters and subplots. The travelers are all that is constant. And Bad Lads, Kit and Molly are fleeing towards nowhere. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what, Keith, that's what Keith was just talking about, was that this kind of so became that's a prototype. What you, okay, so that's what you meant by that. So, so Bonnie and Clyde's a road film. I've never heard the term. Um, it's kind, kind of, of like sort of, or... uh, Vanishing Point was around this time, and that was another one that was kind of kind of a road movie. Uh, I mean, most recently, the most recent one I could think of, and there's probably something more recent than that, the Devil's, the Devil's Rejects. Yeah. No, that would definitely be a road movie. Absolutely. It's just, yes. Yeah, I love Donald that movie. God, I love it. I mean, movie. Martin Shane before this time, basically, he did Catch 22, which was that kind of a failed film adaption. It didn't do much. And then he made a gay, he made a gay, he made one of the first gay movies called That Certain Summer for television. And then Badlands was his first major role. Okay. Who did the Thin Red Line? Was that? Terrence Malick. That's Matt. That's, that's, that's his Malick. movie. Okay. So, same director so but um with badlands i think i mean when i say you know yeah bonnie and clyde's a, a road movie and stuff like this but this i guess this is the first i guess naturalistic the first one feels one. real yeah i guess i guess there's that because yeah bonnie and clyde does does have that 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 hollywood feeling to it yeah no but it also feels like some of it is done on a back lot there's some things where they're riding on the road it feels like a back lot when they ended up in towns and stuff Oh, okay. You know, I didn't know uh, that before. I will next time. Yeah. I mean, I love Bonnie and Clyde. Nothing against Bonnie and Clyde. No. And, oh, I absolutely um, adore it. It's, yeah. You know, it's a great movie. Ever. But with this one, I feel it's like more naturalistic. and just has like, you know, I mean, like when they went to the towns and when they're going to the shacks and the houses, you could just tell that they were, they didn't build that for the film. They found that some film scout found these places. Oh God. Yeah. You they know, had to. Everything oh, was yeah. there. The um, uh, what what is the friend's name that he shoots? That that little shack in the middle of nowhere. Oh, the nice guy that helped him, and they end up killing him because anyway. What? That's the thing. The, 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 the paranoia, the paranoia of kittenness is something that's just beyond. Well, he was trying to go, but he was sending him out on a wild goose chase. There were no coins out in the field. I think he knew he had to get away from him. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but you also have to remember that he had to get rid of his friend anyway, because didn't he just take that couple and just murder them in the in the storm cellar? Well, he does. Yeah. Uh, no, he let them go, didn't he? No, wait, he no, shot he, in there. You don't know. If he he shot did. in there. We don't know if he killed them or not. But he he had already shot his friend by that point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was very random. He just like shot in silence. Like, oh, did I, do we get them? I don't know. Let's just go. I mean, the thing, the thing I'm willing, I guess what I'm thinking that he probably did kill them only because I'm looking more on the stock weather case because they did the same thing. Did he think he was that relevant that he needed to use a dictaphone to record his final confession? Well, if you look, if you look at the end of the movie, he was that relevant because, you know, there's people wanting his lighter. They want his... Yeah. Isn't that so brown-nosing, brown-nosing of those detectives? Oh wow! I gotta have this if I can. Work. I mean, yeah, but, but you gotta remember they they caught this cross country killer. They caught him, so you're gonna get notoriety from that. I mean, yeah, where true. where would Leo Bergosi be without Charles Manson? True. That, that's 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 the thing is that this you know we still kind of have that that kind of subculture 
that that like lionizes all these uh, serial killers to this day. So th- maybe well, that's a statement on that. Money. If you look at like people, serial killers have been caught. Whether you know, you know the per- you know, the cops that hire that you know caught Jeffrey Dahmer, for instance, they got pictures standing up next to him. Like I caught the guy. Yeah, yeah, that's so. Weird. <laughs> you know, there's there's a peacock mentality that basically you're doing good, and that basically you are the person that caught him. And then of course you get the whole thing where oh, can I have my picture taken next to you because you're notorious? I mean, how many people have their pictures taken without Capone? I mean, he was. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know when they knew about it before before they brought him down for tax invasion. Yeah, you know they knew they knew he was a dangerous man. They knew he was killing people, but you know I need to get my picture taken with him. I'm Al Capone. Yay! Or... These kids seem like they're role playing, though. I mean, they're playing house on the road. But I mean, it kind of her her life is like meaningless. And she apparently she doesn't think that anything's going to happen to her because what's her one favorite statement? You know, it hit me that I was just this little girl born in Texas whose yeah. father was a sign painter who only had just so many years to live. You know, so would she have a, a bleak outlook on life already? Anyway? Well, there, but 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 there again, what we have now is what does she say? He only had so many years to live. Well, she's not no, her. but no, but but what I'm saying is nowhere does it there say that he's dying from a disease. He has any kind of thing wrong with them. Yeah. And yeah. then the boyfriend shows up at the house and kills him. Yeah. And she's not all broken up. I was, I would have been losing my mind. She's like, oh, you know, man. And she walks the female character to the storm cellar. Yeah. So she's totally complicit. I mean, even though she's I'm, 15. But, but she's underage. She's underage. So even the worst thing that can happen to her because she's under Doobie 18. back then? Doobie for two years and out. Because that's what happened to Carol Ludgate. Yeah. For the, the, the Stockweller thing. She was 13. She was there. That makes me yeah, but um, she, she got, she, was she, went da- she went down for a couple years and then she got out. He got, you know, he got the death sentence and voila. But that's exactly what we did in, in the movie of we talk about Kevin when he went to learn a killing spree and he was just before 16. All were planned. So yeah, now, now that you mentioning all these things, it kind of feels like the she might have been a little bit complicit. Maybe, I don't know, imagine the fact that she was hanging out with this guy, the father say, oh, don't hang out with the guy, she lies, and then the father kills the dog. And then she's like, okay, he needs to I know, she she doesn't feel there's something. That sounds right. Something in her genetic or whatever brain makeup that doesn't feel. If someone shot one of my dogs, I'd be losing my fucking mind and I'd be loading whatever I got in the back (laughs) room. Well, but she, but they, they, had a, they had a boring life, so like, okay, let's go on. Let's go on an adventure. And again, they didn't people. have Kindles. And <laughs> desensitized iPhones. to death. Her mother yeah. dies when she's, you know, really, really young. I, I think she kind of got desensitized to death, maybe. Maybe. It's just weird how I mean, her. It's mm. just, God, why would the father shoot the dog? What did the dog do? Yeah, you know, it's like what's wrong with people? I much rather well, she get shot her. But than then, the but, but see, there again, we this is this is why I think this is what makes this interesting is she talks about the dog, but we never see her with a dog ever. No, oh, is there a dog? The dog. You do see the dog. Opening shot. We hear, we oh, know she tells us that's right. He's in the yard, but was the dog shot? We don't know. We're going by we're going by what her. She's telling us an argument that her father said to her, but we don't see the argument. And she says, "This is what happened." We don't. Well, see you the see dog him shoot the dog. 
you do see him shoot the dog and you do see her with the dog in the opening shot of the movie where yeah. she's she's sitting in bed uh kind of like cuddling with the dog but at the same time we're we still have to go by her term of events well yeah this is this is all entirely like you know the potentially unreliable narrator right there's and there's a there's a few there's Very a few biased. points where i see something where i'm like is terrence malick trying to make a point with uh with certain things when they are uh driving across the road she's reading about you know rita hayworth and frank sinatra right. so you have this juxtaposition of the reality like keith was saying the reality of what life was like at this time versus right. what she's reading about in these glamour magazines she's reading about frank sinatra she's idolizing him as though he's james dean so you have that uh the other thing that stuck out to me is the scene after you know it's Im implied that they had sex right so is that what is that what this is all about that's the big to do you know that, uh, why does everybody make a big to do of this there's always been this kind of psychological thing where guys tend to like women who are less experienced sexually. And it's only recently that I've seen women actually say, no, it's because they don't know shit about how to actually do it. So they go for the women who have absolutely no experience because they don't know how bad it is. And like maybe Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, I, mean, I, I did read something interesting. Uh, uh, the tweets were since taken down. Uh, a porn star kind of defending Leonardo DiCaprio because she said, you gotta, you gotta realize when you're 20 years old and you're dating guys your age, these guys don't know jack shit. Why would I be dating them? And she just got raked over the coals for it. Um, and I, 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 I kind of saw that and I'm like, you know, on the one, I do see both sides on that one. Yeah. I do see it from the woman's point of view too. Of No, I can either I go out funny. with this, I don't care. Like I'm 20 I mean, years old, I could either go out with this 20 year old schmuck who doesn't have his shit together or this man in his 40s who who has his shit together and, and can actually treat me decently and take me places where I want to go. So I kind of see both sides. For a couple of weeks until he finds somebody that has a lesser driver's license. Oh, there's um, there, there, there's uh, there, there's one one young uh, one one young girl that I work with, well, young woman I should say, I shouldn't say young girl. Uh, on her twenty fourth birthday, I uh, I told her you only got a couple more years before yeah. before you're technically like a milf. One. Oh no, that was when she turned twenty three. I was like, you're two years away from being considered a milf. And this year, <laughs> this year when she turns twenty four, you'll be like, you got one year left to bag Leo. Yeah, there you go. There you <laughs> before go. you're too old. But no, I mean, I think that that's part of it is the um, is the, this perception of oh well, she's inexperienced. So the fact that I don't know jack shit about what I'm doing doesn't matter. Because um, right. you see that a lot, where guys, we, I, I think it's part of part of you know slut shaming. Yeah, is yeah. if you're with somebody who actually knows what she likes and you can't achieve that, then I think that's I, I don't know if that was something that was intentional by Malik or if it just kind of kind of went that way with age. Uh, so well, that, you, that, you, he probably was going to have to go there because you got two young red-blooded you know kiddos there you know they're gonna do it how are you gonna approach that because he didn't show anything and that's what you got with it I, I mean they're they're I guess they did it and she just was not impressed so maybe there's some truth to what you're saying I get both sides of the equation like you do I just thought it was funny how she was not impressed <laughs> it's like so oh so this is what it is you know? I, I, but, I, but I another question is, is but then again it's you know maybe she wasn't a virgin 
it's hard to compare something you never had before and whether no it's good. I'm or kind bad. of assuming she was a virgin though. But you're you're making an assumption weird. though again because how if you never had sex before how do you know if it's good or bad? Well, she did say so. That's what the big to do is it, about. It's after, it's after you have. It's after, but I'm saying after you have sex the second time, then you have something to compare it to. <laughs> I mean, I never understood. Like you know, when you remember when there you had those terrorists that said that you know when they're going to do this for Allah and that they'll get a hundred virgins. And I always thought to myself, like, seventy-two, seventy-two virgins. Yeah, why? Would you like, who wants who wants seventy-two virgins? It's like all these clingy people, and you have to move them around. You're having sex in the court because I'm done with the do. It's like seventy-two times. It's just too much. That work. always cracks me up. I saw that thing about what was not to you. Give me a you're talking about how. People- how people are going to get their 72 virgins and then they say, well, Lemmy just died. So he's up there. You're not going to get your 72 virgins. <laughs> that's, a, that's the thing that always got me about that too. Why the hell would you want to, I don't have, look, I'm too old for this shit. I don't have the time or inclination to speak, uh, to, to, to teach. Give me somebody who knows what she's doing. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> Like, wait, Someone you, who can go wait, down wait. on me without their teeth and I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're one of those? Okay. Like, wait, how, how many guys have you seen? I'm just 30? saying it, it, it's really difficult to have someone have sex with someone who has never had sex before. Yeah. You know, I remember fumbling around when I was 14 years old in my tent with the next door neighbor. You know, and I'm saying it's, it's not a great experience. I'm no. just like, oh, God. <laughs> Well, nobody but knows as what I got older doing. and I'm meeting people who had sex already, I mean, I'm you know, you have it's fantastic, you have great times. It's like it's that's good. Moving someone around is like, oh my god, I would no, kind of like, hope that somebody here and they're moving their body here, moving their knee here, so know what they do. Inside. <laughs> somebody has to know that somebody's got to bring something to the table, you know. This yeah. first yeah, time around funny. is like really. That's why I was laughing because, you know, and I was thinking back, hopefully this person doesn't hear this podcast. It's just like, wow, that's it. Because that's why I laugh because, yeah, it is no big deal, especially if you're a girl and you're younger. Because guys don't know shit when they're younger. Wait, how many guys have you had sex with? 46? Yeah, come on. Well, let's let's, let's, let's go back to my place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anything (laughs) over 30. (laughs) Anything over 30. Yeah, if you have a trick pelvis come on over yeah. the water's fine <laughs> so, but that's what I, but that's what i quite like about badlands at the end of the day is it's like you can look at it like this way take it at face value but then if you start going deeper into it you can kind of like you know because at the end of the day you're seeing things from her point of view you're, everything you're seeing trying is from to figure her point out of the point of the point of their relationship though what 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 was the point of their relationship? Were they trying to escape their life? What were they? Everything just seems so spontaneous in this movie. Everything down to the no murders purpose. are spontaneous. There's well, no but is there? But the thing, the my question basically is, is like you know when you watch a documentary and you see someone go and they see someone go through this horrible experience and you're hearing about this horrible experience and that voiceover that they tell you. And it has this certain sound to it. And if you look at Sissy Spacek's voiceover, it has that sound to it. So it's like, you know, like if you if you if you talk to like the Charles Manson gang, if you see Susan Atkins when she's talking about it, just like it's almost like she's talking about it, but not taking full responsibilities. Like she was, you know, it's like, or at least a Carrie Winkle when you talk when you hear talking, she goes, you know, Charles wanted this to happen, and we sit there and did it. And I kind of was along for the ride. And they have this way that they talk about their voice. And, and that's what I found 
interesting about Badlands is when Kissy's um, Sissy Spacek's character giving the voiceover. Um, it's basically like that, like you hear those voiceovers when you're watching those crime documentaries. Right. You know, it's kind of like they're slightly removed and they're not taking responsibility for what happened. They're not taking responsibility for the crime that they were that they were committed in. What's his purpose like, in life? He sees her and she gets like all caught up in his whirlwind of bullshit and mayhem. And she's obviously she's she doesn't have, she's kind of soulless herself for a young woman. She doesn't feel at all. Maybe. Well, yeah, she does, but that's, she's even sick of him. If you guys see her in the car, she gets bored with him, too. She gets yeah. tired of him. But the question, know? the question basically is, is that what most serial killers have in common is that their emotional blindness. That's they true. don't feel anything unless there's this unless it's the murder. So maybe Sissy Spacek is the one that's gearing this all forward. And maybe the one that decides to make a stop for it is him. And that she doesn't like it. And that's when she walks away. But she's telling you her version of the facts because he said that I'll take full responsibility. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing he says to her. I'm going to yeah. take full responsibility. Yeah, which actually so that, doesn't match with the rest of the movie. But yeah. I mean, there's, but it almost seems like there's a piece of the story missing. Yeah, or is he going to set her up? No, he doesn't set her up because he he, take, he takes the fall. He goes down. But you also have to remember when she's giving you the voiceover, she's not giving you the voiceover as it's happened. She's giving you the voiceover as an retro. afterthought. Yeah. And retro and a retro afterthought. So that's why I'm saying that. And what's interesting about when you look at the Starkweather um, Carol case, the question is, is like how much input or how much did she have to do with it? Because he took the whole blame and she went off like, oh, she's this innocent girl. Yeah, she but then you find life, didn't she? Well, then you find out that basically she was a little bit more affected than he was. You find out like like years later, it come it's come out that basically that she was the wheels behind it all. How do you know? She's that? the one that she because she came out and said it before on, she came out and um, wrote it all down. If you he, look her he's, up, she, he's she talking wrote about it all the... down and and. So we're talking about I Starkweather. I must have missed something. He's, must have missed he, no, he's talking about the real life case. Oh, the life okay, case okay. Stark- oh, yeah. okay. The real life, the real life case is Starkweather, which this is based on, and then basically he went down and died. Yeah, and they get Carol, that up in the Dakota. The, the, the thir- but the thirteen-year-old, basically, you know, she went down and she was innocent and all this other stuff. And then she later comes out, like in her thirties or forties saying that she was actually the mastermind behind it. So she was wanting to kill these people. But because she was female and young. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think that's probably what Ta- Terrence Malick is trying to say here is that we're looking at this because she's young, that she's impressionable. But what are the mo- motives behind these choices? How, why did Bored she? Well, they were both shallow in the movie. They're both well, they're shallow, self-centered individuals. Well, they're bored. Yeah, they bored and just go and killing people. That I, I don't, I just don't get it. Like if there is a, I don't know. I get if, if there is a mental act? sickness, <laughs> which is why if there is a mental sickness. No, but if there is a mental sickness, you are let's just say like a person who acts on sociopathy or etc. Okay, I don't justify. I just I want to understand. So I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense. When we watched. <clears throat> I mean, what's the movie? We need to talk about Kevin. He does it because blah, 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 blah. There's a reason behind it. In here, I don't see any particular reason. I can't understand how a Why person... Why ha- the thing is, is... Let's just go but, and kill people. It's but weird. The thing, the thing is, is that people do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, let's talk yeah, about... They, they, Brandon. They do it let's, let's talk, let's talk, well, let's talk about... 
let's talk about Brenda Ann Spencer. Brenda Ann Spencer is 16 years old. Basically, she's um, living across from a school in San Diego. She wakes up on the 29th of January, takes out her gun, and starts start shooting at a um, starts shooting at a, ch- a children's playground. Yeah, you know, she shoots at them. Doesn't feel anything about it. She's picking them off one by one. The police come. They, you know, they finally get her to surrender. She surrenders, and her reason for it, I felt like it because I don't like Mondays. I woke up and I was bored. There's people out there like that, no doubt. I don't, I don't, I can't believe that. There must be some mental issues. There. Well, they're mental, all be. right. Well, the thing that's is, what is I mean. the, the, to be honest, is that, yeah, but I don't think that everything has a cause and effect. Some people just have, just some people just wake up one day and decide they're going to open fire on a school. Some people might get up one day and just decide to go postal on their local office workers or might set up in a bell tower and start shooting off college kids. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have anything that's, doesn't mean that they, that they you it's know, they could be. It happened here in Texas a long time ago. Well, it, it happens all over the world. I mean, like, you know, you get a person who gets in their car and decides to drive through a, a busy pedestrian crossing. And it's not because they've had a bad day or these people did anything to them. Sometimes people just wake up and just feel disenfranchised or not feel nothing. Now, it could be a, a big, uh, you know, it's not going to be anything, one thing that happens. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're mentally unstable either. Just that that's what they felt that day and that they had their, their impulse told them to do this and they did it. What about people who kill people in the name of God? They do they have a mental illness? A mental or dis- or, I'm sorry, but that's a mental disease. Or, or did God speak to them? Um, I, 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 whatever. I, I generally think that in behind killing, and I, don't get me wrong, I've not studied psychology or psychiatry or anything like that. So I put my hands ahead of me and say, I might be completely wrong. But I always think that there's always a psychological reason behind any choice made in life, whether good or, or bad. Oh, Yeah. And then there could Maybe. be some mental instability or some issues or some repressed feelings or whatever that happens behind. I always think that there is a reason behind choices, whether it's what rational. What about basically, a, what about take children in a playground and everyone's having fun and all of a sudden you get one kid who decides to haul off and punch some kid in the, fam, in the face? See, I, I don't, again, I'm not justifying. I'm only thinking. That there must be some mental problem over there. No, like repressed doesn't feelings, doesn't mean, trauma, doesn't mean they're ever going to do it again. I'll just say it doesn't mean they're ever going to do it again. It's out of flash. I don't pulse. I don't, I don't know. I haven't studied psychiatry or psychology enough to know. Yeah. But, but what I'm know. saying, but I think what, as a society, we are always trying to fig- find out the reasons. We're always trying to figure out why Ted Bundy did what he did. We're always trying to figure out why Jeffrey Dahmer did what he did. Yeah. And the thing is, you can put you can put two people living, you know, if, if you get, let's take Jeffrey Dahmer's a bit easier because you have a, two brothers being brought up the same exact way. And why did one end up this way and the other one didn't? Why did Jeffrey Dahmer play with animal bones from a very young age, but his brother never did? Why did, you know, and they were brought up the same by the same parents and stuff like this. But then, but then was it because one's older than the other one? Are they different ages or who knows? But as society, we're always thinking that there's a reason for everything. But sometimes there's not a reason. It's just aberration sometimes. I think that's what it is. What's that? Just it's something that's just not not normal. It's just it's It's just was just like an aberration, like you just said. I I I mean it's just something that's just you know statistically just 
Some people are just broke inside, basically. And, and well, they, they I think I think if we I think if we people. if we if we wind this back to ourselves when we were kids and basically when we did something wrong and we just did it and our parents asked us why there was no reason why we did it. We just did it. We didn't give it a lot of thought process, did we? But no. we didn't have our brain developed enough to understand what's right and wrong. That's what I mean. Well, no, our brain development basically at that time is about how do I talk my way out of this so I don't get in so much trouble. Yeah. And we ra- and we rationalize it within ourselves why we did something bad and our parents have caught us doing something bad. But why we're doing that something bad, we're not thinking twice about whether this is bad or good. We're just doing it. Right. Exactly. When we're yeah. going home, that's when we realize how bad it is. When we're going home, it's like, oh shit, now I'm going to get in trouble because now I'm actually thinking about it. But right. why we're doing it and before we actually do it, we just mm-hmm. do it. And when you're on a killing spree, and the thing is, is that, okay, we did it at that moment. The only time that they're on this killing spree that they're doing right or wrong, that they might think about it is when they get caught. And then, or you think you're going to get caught. And that's when you start coming up with reasonings why you did something. But you're, while you're doing whatever you're doing, you're not giving it a lot of thought whether you're doing good or bad. You know, same thing, like if you're, if you're doing something good in your life and, and, you're, and you want to pr- provide a good life, you just do good. You don't think about, oh, I'm going to do this because it's good. If you are thinking that way, or I'm doing something because this is bad, and that's the way that you think through your life, then you have more problems than a serial killer does. Because you shouldn't really be having to like rationalize, I'm going to do something good. So if I do, if I'm going to be good, so I'm going to do this, or if I'm going to be bad and I'm going to do this. And if you start thinking your life in those kind of ways, that means you're narcissistic, which is, has its own problems in its own self as right. well. You know, if you're going to do something good, you just do it. You don't think about it. If you're going to do something bad, you just do it. If you do something boring, you just do it. You know what I mean? You don't give it a lot of thought processes. The only time you give things in your life a lot of thought processes is when you're looking at futures and things that you have to prepare for the future. And then you might do something. But if you're just acting on day-to-day thing, you're, you're acting on impulse all the time. That makes so sense. That- that's how you would look at things more and more of a psychological feeling and i think that you know i think with malik's badlands how i interpret it basically is because her her voiceovers in the past tense so you know they're reviewing it and so basically you're seeing things from her point of view is that basically is how we look at situations and we can sit there and we we can look at situations and it's so easy for us to sit there and look at the young and gullible as being innocent, but maybe they're not always as innocent as they want us to be. Oh, I know they're not totally innocent. <laughs> I mean, I used to be young and I knew what was going on. Not that I killed anybody, but you know, when you're fucking up, normal people know when they're fucking up, you know? Well, well the, the question basically is when you have a male and female um, killers, like the honeymoon killers, or right. you have, or if you have, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, or you have Fred and Rose West, or you have Starkweather and Carol. The question basically is, is that would they have killed if they were on their own? Or is it because they were together is the reason why they killed? I wish they would have gotten his head just a little bit like they did with her, because you kind of saw where she was coming from. But you didn't really, you know, I mean, he didn't even really... Sex was even a non-issue in this movie, really. There was some kissing going on and stuff. But I mean, it really wasn't the quintessential pivoting point of virgin meets bad boy, 
I mean, can we, but can we, but this is another thing that I think is quite interesting about Malik. If this was done from a male point of view, there would have been a lot of sex going into it because it's the female point of view. Females in the fifties weren't very, and were quite repressed with their sexuality and they weren't very open about what kind of sex they were having. Right. Somebody was having sex. I know they were. Women, women didn't. <laughs> women didn't was women laid in the fifties. <laughs> but yeah, but the thing is that women didn't really talk about sex, no, really outwardly until like the eighties. Yeah, and, and even for to, a little while after that, there was still a little bit of repression. It wasn't until right. recently that it's just. I think it just picked the last twenty years. I think things really. Totally blue. Well, and, and but the eighties it kind of started because of Oprah Winfrey and Jenny Jones and those kind right. of shows. Oh God, and Jenny was, Jones! I forgot about who was the other one with the, the glasses. Sarah, uh, Sally, Sally, oh, Jesse Raphael. Oh my God, and, and, I love and Ricky Sally Lake and stuff like this, where people started becoming a bit more open about sexualness, sort of thing, and women and women started becoming, you know, th- that was like the scraping of it, and of course. We're progressing now because we're moving right. society's moving onwards. But if you look at the 50s and 60s, even with house, even when your housewives were having sex and they had five or six children, the women were going around like they, they never had sex before, even though they have children and they're yeah. married. Because there's a sexual repression on women at that time, anyway. Yeah. Where a man, and it, I remember a man's yeah. a stud if he sleeps with five or six women, a woman's a slut if she sleeps with two men. Yeah. You know, that, so you that, got that, that just, going on here as well. That's some, that's some bullshit I can say out there, ladies. And if you look, if you, and <laughs> if you look at, you, but if you look at, but again, if you look at literature at this time, and if and if you look at female writers at this time, they don't. You know, there's not a lot of there's no sex scenes at any time at this time by women Is writers. There any sex Men, in Shirley Jackson's books? No, they're all asexual. Like I was trying they, to might, they might have children, but they're kind of asexual. There's a hinting of it, but there's never anything full fledged. But if you look at the men at that time, Ernest Hemingway and yeah. you know J.D. Solinger and you I'm know, trying to all think those, of another female author. They're, they're writing about sex. They're having sex. All those male characters are having sex. Right. Who are they having by sex with? Because the women aren't the women aren't having sex with anybody. Who are they having sex with? Well, what I'm saying is that the male the male writers are all talking I'll talk about the writers. The female writers is like they're kind of like the sex is kind of left off the books. Wait, sex exists? Yeah. How do you have baby? Like, oh, I, I, even oh, at, I remember when we were kids in, in Catholic school. I don't know about you, Keith, but I used to think that the nuns were a third sex. I used to ask my mom <laughs> if they had hair under their hats or if they had periods or did they go swimming? I honestly did not think that they were human beings. <laughs> I thought they were totally something else, like a third sex. You know, somebody clearly, somebody clearly didn't watch a lot of Italian horror movies in the seventies, where you had like the, you know, the, I did, the, but I still didn't understand. I thought that they were fucked up in those movies too. Nuns scared. That's why I think like the nuns one of my scared, my favorite horror films because of the nuns. <laughs> Because it does, and they, it freaks me out. Because nuns, they were, they were horrible. Now people are killing themselves to get into parochial school now. Not me. But I uh, mean, that, no, I cannot believe that that's actually going on. It's actually, actually a thing because people they, well, they don't have school. people like that teaching like they did when we were kids. But they, but now they they've got such they're so far ahead of the public school system, which we were too, you know, back then. But I hated it. But it's just, you know, who can afford Catholic school now? It's like college tuition now. 
I I can't imagine that that in this generation there's still this. Uh, they don't do it like they used to. They don't do that anymore. But they, you know, I get tired of hearing about the fucking altar boys because they humiliated girls on a daily basis. It was awful. I I got such a problem with that shit. Yeah. So who's out there? Just going. I was tucked up on the priest is one of the best experiences I've ever had. So that was me, though. <laughs> I know some of the priests you're talking about, and I know exactly which one you're talking yeah. about. There's three possibles. <laughs> three possibles, that's all I'm going to say. I, I, I don't know if he's still alive. The if, you're Watertown, if you're from Watertown, New York, hello, Father Harry. <laughs> No, Father of Coin. Don't forget Father me. <laughs> father, what a waste. That's what we used to call father, him. Father, what a waste. Father Remigio was Father, what a waste. Curly hair, big blue eyes. I would just go in there to make him sweat in the confessional. I did every time I could. Yeah. So. Even though I didn't I mean, sin that much back then. It was until after eighth grade. That's when the real sinning started. <laughs> so, so what are your thoughts about Badlands, Joe? Um, th- this was a first time viewing for me, so this was. I thought you would have seen this before. No, I'd never seen this before. Um, so yeah, it, it was it, it it was something to it was something to take in for me because, like I said, I, I did see a lot of subtext that um that I felt Terrence Malick was putting in there that maybe wasn't um wasn't as overt. I brought up you know the the whole thing. After, I right. wish I could remember what my third point was because it was it, it was that it was um. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of split dichotomy between, uh, you know, what they're reading in the magazine versus what's, uh, versus right. what's going on in real life. That was, uh, I wish I could remember what my third point was going to be. And it's, it escaped it's me. Come to you. Years I know ago. it will. It will. Just break it'll it come to me after we're, after we're done. And I'll, I'll be like, oh, that's the one. That was. Hopefully you'll remember. Really, we'll spark a memory here for you. I really need to start taking notes during these because I'm relying I've got, on always, I've got pages of notes. I, I see you. I see you lifting them up sometimes. You go, okay, I was, yeah, this. I can't live without my notes. No, I've got to have them. Because yeah, I'm, I'm seeing with thing. you guys. You guys are like walking encyclopedias. So i got to be on top of it. Well, I mean, it's also. Oh, no, it's I'm, also I'm, it's also hard for me to take notes when I'm watching a movie because like, I want to be. I do it after the, the fact. I stop it sometimes. <laughs> I'll start it back up when I miss and then I'll go and read what other people thought. And just, I get all my ideas from <laughs> everywhere, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish you could remember what my third point was going to be. Cause film those, wise, those, maybe those road two wise, or three I could remember. Road uh, film wise or something like that. Maybe the, the difference. I mean, I didn't really. Films. I mean, I, I really didn't think of it. Uh, in terms of a in terms of a road movie, until Keith mentioned it, uh, I didn't. I didn't either. Until Keith mentioned it, like you know, half an hour ago or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, my, my, maybe my second Terrence Malick movie because the only other one I've seen is The Thin Red Line. That's the only seen one any, I've seen too. Yeah, I haven't seen anything else by him. So he's somebody that I I, I guess I kind of tend to go towards older films a lot, older than even the seventies. So yeah, I mean, as far as just, actually, too. I mean, it's it's a fantastic movie. I I kind of watched it comparing it to Bonnie and Clyde. I um, and did uh, he do the Bonnie and Clyde movie too? No, that was Arthur uh, Arthur Miller. Okay, thank you. For uh, that. Oh no, Arthur. Yeah, um, no, this is Terrence Malick's first movie. So, um, so no, I mean Martin Sheen is fantastic, and it's Sissy Spacek. Mar- Martin Sheen, the two times we covered him. 
has had a great young actress to like go up against, yeah. which is just fantastic. Uh, watching him here with Sissy Spacek after watching him with uh, um, Jodie Foster. Um, it's one I, you know, I realized it was one that I should have watched. I, I picked up the criterion of this one too, just to, I haven't gone in and, and like dug into all the stuff. I know that there's a, there's a documentary on Charles Starkweather in there that I'll probably go check out uh, in the next yeah. couple of days. Um, but yeah, as far as my thoughts on it, it's, it's fantastic. I'm amazed. I never, I never came across it before. Um, it, fe- it feels like it's one of, one of my blind spots and uh, maybe I should be, well, I guess I definitely should be watching more Terrence Malick since I haven't seen that much of him. I, I could tell you about a Bela Lugosi movie from 1942 that like three people saw in theaters, but Terrence Malick, I have a blind spot for. So oh my God. all of us have those. Now, if it was Mario Bava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it, if it was some weird Italian giallo or like. Yeah, I, I would, you are oh, definitely yeah. the go-to person. I'm telling you. <laughs> yes, Edwin Finch in one of her best roles, yeah. and uh, but yeah, this and this is uh, no, it's a fantastic movie that I'm that, that I'm glad I saw, and I probably wouldn't have watched if it wasn't for this podcast. So I'm glad I did. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it finally came across as, as something that I need to see. Um, I've heard of Tree of Life. I've never seen it, so yeah. I'm gonna have to go go through and watch that. It's definitely made me want to watch more Terrence Malick movies. A great director. Did quite Before he became a director, it's quite interesting that he was a um, professor of philosophy. That, that makes, makes sense. Kind of sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, an interesting thing about this as well, did you notice the two boys um, sitting underneath the lamppost outside of Holly's house, Sissy Spacek's house? Oh, and what no. I vaguely want to say I remember, but I know. They are, there is Charlie Sheen and Milo Estrepez's first film. Okay. Is it really? really? Now that's I gotta amazing. go back and find that. I totally did not see that. That's great. It was a because I thought at first they looked like they were arguing and discussing, and then they sit down next to each other. Yeah. I didn't understand that scene though. So um, I mean, Ter- yeah. but Terrence Malick, um, he has his own. I mean, it, there's a lot of interesting directors that came out around this time. Robert Altman is another one that's you know he had these very ideal idiosyncratic. Um, directors um, that were operating at this time. Um, there was also um, a, who directed The Shining? Um, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, Robert Altman, Terrence Malick, uh, and they all have their own individual voice and sound and filming technique that that the world has never been able to copy or change or or even try to emulate since. They have their own style that no one's ever been able to copy. Um, Alfred Hitchcock is you can always tell when someone's copying Alfred Hitchcock, Brian De Palma, but <laughs> but but for some reason I don't think anyone's ever tried to copy a or a, a filming technique of Stanley Kubik's or Terrence Malick or even Robert Altman's style. Whether you're watching Nashville or um, The Player and just the film things like that. And that's why I find quite interesting about Terrence Malick that you'll there'll never well, be another one like him. Well, I think what what ended up happening is in the eighties you just kind of got like the mass commercialization of movies. Maybe that's why you don't really get like I feel like the the kind of personal film, the, the kind of small personal film with a big Hollywood budget uh, 
well, this wasn't really a big Hollywood budget, but I kind of feel like uh, a lot like the 70s was like the last vestige of the golden era, because in the 80s, that's when you started getting, you know, the big glossy movies that, uh, that that everyone thinks of with Hollywood again. You know, maybe that's why is that is this is something from a time period that really doesn't like these guys will still make their movies. Uh, Scorsese will still make this type of movie. Um but yeah, well, Terrence, I think Terrence Malick was a, is a bit of a. Well, he's an uh, auteur. I think the auteur director is kind of gone. Well, when he did Days of Heaven, his next film, which is a good film starring Richard Gere and Brooke Adams and Sam Shepard, um, it, it he edited it. And it took him two years to edit it. So, because he, you know, he had to be in every single. He has the, you know, the thin red line. It took him three years to get that. No, you know, to edit that it, long. To edit. To edit it, he because he has to be in every single, every no single shit, frame. I didn't know that. He's very. That's why Good I take this. And because of Days of Heaven, because of that, because it was so grueling, that's the reason why he didn't make another film until the thin blue, the the thin, thin blue, red line. Thin red line, yeah. I keep because, wanting to see um, the big because red one it, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Because Good. It, I, it, I would rather have that than the cookie cutter stuff that we that, that we get otherwise. Yeah. I like that the guy wants to make sure every frame is exactly what he wants it to be. Um, you know, Vicky mentioned uh, Raging Bull. There was um, there was a scene in that where Scorsese noticed that one of the extras was wearing a watch that wasn't properly of the time period. Right. And he wanted to reshoot the entire scene. And the producers were like, well, we can't we, we can't just reshoot the entire scene. It's going to cost this. And Scorsese was like, either we go back and reshoot that entire scene. Or you can take my fucking name off this movie. And that's the attention to detail that these guys had. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate I that it. as well. I love that they don't want to do this cookie cutter I probably stuff wouldn't that. have caught it, though, because, but what was it? Was no, Raging I Bull have seen it. Raging Bull was what, the 40, wait, the, was it the 30s or the 40s? It's set in the, it's set in the 40s. Because he died at what? He didn't die. He didn't die all too long ago, too. I mean, that guy was alive. He, died, he died, I want to say, like 15 years ago. Like, yeah, Jake wasn't Lamont he died, died in the 2000s? I keep thinking 2014. But yeah, Scors- Scorsese, like, like that attention to detail, I appreciate the filmmaker. Like, yeah, the one who's going to go back and go, no, this scene, this little frame here doesn't fit what I want. Take it out, you know? Because you're paying for the experience when you're going to see one of these directors. You know you're going to get the experience. You know that it's going to be well shot. Wait, it is. Well, I think another thing you have to remember is this film only cost three hundred thousand dollars to make. Three fifty, I thought, right? Was it three hundred thousand? I mean, three hundred. Okay, that's cheap. <laughs> that's cheap, cheap, cheap. How much do you think yeah. did Sissy and and uh, uh, Emilio's daddy get it? Because <laughs> they weren't they weren't names. They, they probably were nobody. Machine. That so. Martin Sheen probably got a a, a decent. Payday, but pro- but Sissy Spacek probably got like probably nothing. no because that's what like, this is her first movie, movie. First movie. I keep I mean, this is her first, and he was in a few movies, yeah. so he was definitely he, he must have been getting at least you know at least the minimum the sad minimum at least, minimum. A, at least twenty grand maybe. I mean, Malik paid twenty five thousand of his own funds, and remainder was raised from professionals such as doctors and dentists. Mm-hmm. And he and he, and he ra- right. and he raised the money himself to make this film. It, this is oh, not yeah, you know what film. I forgot about M when we were talking about it? He actually went and interviewed a bunch of, of uh, criminals, and he even had prisoners in the movie or criminals in the movie. A lot of people got arrested after the filming stopped. I thought I could pass that one on before I told you about the I mean, 
I, th- th- that's one other thing that these two movies have in common is it does kind of have the um, the kind of sympathy for the uh, for the villain and. Well, Peter that, Laurie was a hard one. I didn't feel sorry for Martin Sheen or Sissy Spacek. Well, I, I met Actually, more Sissy Spacek than Martin Sheen. I well, didn't feel sorry for either one of them. I thought they were both assholes. They were both insensitive <laughs> assholes. Well, in you know what? You know what's quite interesting about this, though, that Sissy Spacek makes meets Jack Frisk, the art director for all Terrence Malick films. They get married. Jack Frisk's next movie is Carrie. No shit, I didn't know that. Is he the one? Well, I mean, the Palmer. He's the art director, Carrie. Yes. He does. And uh, uh, Jack Frist did all the art directing on De Palma and Terrence Malick films. I didn't know that. So, and Martin Scorsese as well. Are they still married? Yep. They never got divorced. Wow. Some never people do actually house. make it. Good for them. <laughs> that gives us hope. <laughs> I mean, if you look at. Me hope. <laughs> If you look at Jack Frisk, um, I mean, one of his last films was, I mean, he's still alive, but There Will Be Blood. I mean, if you look at the art direction on that, it's fantastic. Uh, with, yeah. uh, who's the guy with the dark hair played in that? There Will Be Blood. I love that movie and I'm having a yeah. Who was the, what is his name? He played in, uh, I'm just having a freaking moment here now. Bless the Mohicans. Andrew Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Is that the one yeah, you're talking here, about? Here's yeah. the thing, you know, don't you know, uh, uh, don't discount the the importance of an art director to your movie if you're if you're out there because like uh, one of the things that I I notice with a lot of like lower level independent films is like you just have like these bare walls and empty frames everywhere. There's no like personality or anything. Never discount the importance of an art director because an art director will guide you and make that film look look a lot better than a lot, and a lot more realistic than you can on your own. I mean if you look at if you look at um Jack Frist's work, I mean he did Badlands, Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, Eraserhead, Days of he- Heaven. Erase. He did Eraserhead? Raggedy Man, yep, he I did. No, he did that. I still Red don't Live. understand David Lynch's <laughs> David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. He did that as well. Mulholland Drive. I wonder, I'd, like to, I'd like to pick his brain on Eraserhead because I've watched that like five times and I still do not know what the fuck I'm watching. It's a story of this um, well it's pretty easy. It's a story of this rebellious um, Catholic schoolgirl that went to Immaculate <laughs> High and then she left there to go to Wartown High School. Eventually ended up in and Green, then I had Greenfield, ugly babies Texas. Like <laughs> 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 Who has had a dog called babies. Sophie sitting on her lap right now. That's the story of Eraserhead. Hey, she's perfect. <laughs> Second, he was actually gonna go and I knew he was. I'm not stupid. I know he's gonna get me every podcast. Thank you. You the shit that goes on when we're not on the podcast. Eraser Eraserhead to me is David Lynch's fear of fatherhood. Right. Yeah. Because at that time his wife was pregnant for Jennifer. That's what you think it was about, or does it actually well? Well, his his wife was pregnant for his first child. Right. And then, so why and would I he want an ugly birth. mutant, you know, to represent his unborn child? Because look, well, babies, babies are kind of ugly mutants in your life, aren't they? When they're first they first appear, remember the the first six months are like, what oh, the hell so have I done no, here? No, they they're cute. Aliens. You know, when they come out, they're we got all that white stuff and blood on them. And I was like asking the doctor when Justin was born, he's not going to stay like this. 
I didn't know the difference with the first ones. Like, God, it's so ugly. He's not going to be this way forever. I, I feel like, like when they're, they're first like, born, they kind of look like frogs. They do. Yeah. They look like aliens. Freaking, they're like, so they're like glow. They're like glow worms without the. They light. are. They're like glow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think what we need to do is rate this. So how many cross-country killings do you give this, Vix? I'll give it four. I liked it. Um, I would have liked to have seen just a little more of his backstory. We got a little bit, but I would have liked to see what was going on in his head a little more. That's all. But it was beautifully filmed. I mean, I love I love her. I mean, Sissy SpaceX, she's been her. She's a staple. Keith's eating for everybody wanting to know. He's snacking <laughs> during the podcast. <laughs> It's a it's a good film. I think everybody should see it, especially if you are a student of film. Is it probably something you'd be interested in? What about yourself, David? So when I first watched it, I would have given the movie a three out of five, but then we discussed it now, and I'm feeling more like a four. And yourself, Joe? Uh, I'm going five on this because it's made me want to watch more Terrence Malick. Um, it had me. It, it had me engrossed the entire time. Um, I don't know how uh, subsequent viewings will go. Maybe, maybe I'll I'll like it just as much. Maybe I won't. But for a first timer who just saw the movie for the uh, just seeing the movie for the first time, absolutely, I'm giving it a five because it was completely engrossing. I never lost any focus in it, and that's a big thing for me. If you can, it, like, I've seen so many movies that if you can keep my attention and keep me right. guessing then yeah I'm, I'm going to like it but i also just love film in general so i'm always yeah, yeah I'm, I know, I'm very, so hard. i mean i can find usually I'm i very, can try to find something that's good and a shitty film you i'm know? very i'm very nice about my ratings like you are i try especially, I especially especially independent films like I, i'm always going to uh grade on a curve for that but this doesn't need the curve this is just a great movie it's a great movie it is I'm going to give this film a solid five because every time I watch it, I notice something different in it. And that's what I like about Terrence Malick is that every time you see it, something more, it's something always is emerging from it. And I like the idea that basically is that you're kind of seeing the director, the actors. I mean, they're basically joining, you know, the first thing that the first major thing that they're all doing together and watching them explode and just be able to, take it and to oxy it takes someone to do a neo-noir film and do it in broad daylight yeah which terrence which terrence malik does there's no there's no shadows going on not what we're kind not quite what we're you know when it comes to noir film that's what we're used to and he's going now i'm gonna do a neo-noir and i'm gonna do it in the bright starlight because there's no night sequences hardly at all in this film I don't remember seeing one really. I guess there's one or two scenes, but for me, yeah, you're right. Uh, mostly- in the beginning, there's a there's a couple there's a couple of scenes that take place at night, but yeah. I mean, I think that's also probably budgetary. Budgetary. <laughs> you don't need as many lights if you're out in the daylight. Yeah. This is true. So which means you can't also but you don't have control of all the elements either. So it's it's interesting. But yeah, so Baron Field in Montana. <laughs> Who who's coming by? There's not going to be many people coming by. 
My son lives in Montana. He says there ain't shit up there. I think there's one person for six square miles. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We should make we should make our our movie. Uh, we should make a movie in Montana to shoot everything. It's so secluded. There's nobody around, so you can just do whatever you need to do. Get it all on film. You can shoot it in the daylight and not have to worry about lights. There you go. <laughs> Are you looking for a graphic design that will take you to the next level? Or something that shows confidence within a growing market to help you stand out amongst the crowd? Amazing Designs gives consistent and on-brand designs whether you are looking for something conservative or you want to let your imagination soar. They bring professionalism to a high standard and they are able to visualize your ideas and give them that extra edge. Working one-on-one -on -one with their designers will give you a design that will live up to your expectations and more. Affordable, expert designs for all occasions whether it's logos brochures or whatever you can dream of amazing designs is your to-go place for creativity and hands-on expertise try amazing designs today contact them via email at amazing designs 505 at gmail.com that's amazing designs 505 at gmail.com or reach out by phone at country code 1-805-203-0427 we love them so much here at the literary license podcast that we use them ourselves but i'd rather be different than be the same well this brings us to the end of the literary license podcast next month our eminem monsters and madmen feature will be the invisible man from 1933 and abbott and costello meet the invisible man from 1951 and of course, next week will be our book to screen. We'll be covering To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a book by Harper Lee. And we'll be covering the film from 1962, starring Gregory Peck. And of course, Doctor Who will be continuing with the Aztecs, which aired from 23rd of May to 13th of June, 1964. And Batman, the animated series, will cover four, which will be basically covering the villains. We'll be covering The Clock King and Apartment in Crime Valley, Mad as a Hatter, and Dreams in Darkness. And our make remake, of course, will be DOA from 1949 and the remake from 1988, DOA starring once couple who are no longer together, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid, which, you know, Meg Ryan met Russell Crowe and never was the same. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Vix. Good night. Good night, David. Good night. Good night, Joe. Good night, everyone. And we'll see you next week for To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee and the film. One shotgun in the trunk, two lovers on the run, three knives in the glove just because.
Two lovers on a 